Welcome to the Jeff Gross Podcast. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes. Welcome, everyone. We have another special podcast today with Mr. Alec Torelli. Alec, how's it going? Hey, man. It's, well, it's good. It's, uh, it's been a while since we've caught up. We were talking off the air for a second, but uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you are uh, in a very interesting place. I, I would say that you know you, you've been very active. I follow you on Instagram, and I see the updates. You've been providing a lot of content and insight into the COVID nineteen situation. Could could you tell us a little about where you are and what's happening there? Because you are in a a hot zone to say the least, maybe the hottest zone. Yeah, we are right at the ground zero here. So I'm uh, I'm in Italy. I spend part of my year here. My wife's uh, from here, and so we we spent a couple months a year in Italy, and uh, we got kind of caught up here when when this whole thing happened. So I've been here now, and um, yeah, it's 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 the hot zone to say the least. Uh, I actually are so Italy has different. Italy is a big place, right? It's like the size of California, but specifically yeah. the area I'm in is the epicenter of the whole outbreak so for example the case number one or that was discovered uh, is 24 miles from my house and our hospital is actually the one that got hit the hardest and if you look at our city the um the per capita ratio of people that are infected is the highest it's actually one out of 90 in our city which is i don't know if it's the highest in the world it's definitely the highest in italy um so we're really really at the at the epicenter here um and that's it, it is it's sad to see what's happening we have friends that work in the hospital it's it's tragic but it also has given me the foresight to understand how this thing plays out and like the behavioral and psychological impacts it has so i've been putting out a lot of content on alectrelli.com like just you know one piece that was interesting is just like the ways that people react to covid so going from you know, it being something that people consider alarmist all the way to being paranoid about it, just watching people progress through those phases. Um, so there's some interesting content there to check out about this, about this subject, but it's, uh, yeah, I've been in the house for 40, I think, I don't know, 45 days. I've sort of lost count, but we're not even allowed to leave the house here. So we can't go on walks. Um, the only thing you can leave the house to do is go grocery shopping, but they really encourage you not to. And I've been getting groceries delivered and it's been a month and a half. Well, how- how is uh, how is that system there? Because in the rest of the world, or well, in the how I know it as you know, Postmates and Uber Eats and that stuff, they, they drop it off. How is the delivery food system there? Yeah, it is. It is incredible. I'm, I'm very, very impressed. So very efficient. Um, there's apps too. We have our own apps. We don't have Postmates, but we have like Supermercato 24, like whatever, right? Um, and but it, but it's it, it's more than that. There's actually like volunteer services that will deliver like prescriptions and stuff like that. Cause it's not, it's not just food that you need. Like, think about it. What do people do with their like medicines, right? Like that would create a whole different system of people needing to be uh, connected socially. Right. So they have these volunteer systems that deliver things to the elderly. Um, They have like certain times where people can go and they have like, it's, it's amazing. Needless to say, I won't bore you with the details, but I'm I'm very impressed. We haven't left the house in 45 days. We have people that are delivering all, all all types of things. And um, they actually, so one of the, one of the alarming things is really is that they, so we're not even allowed to go on walks, right? So the, the, the lockdown measures are way stricter and it's still taking, you know, a long time to flatten this curve, but they're not, they're, they're expecting that you're going to have to wait till May 4th and today's what, April 8th or something. So another month before you're allowed to go on walks. So that, that's, that's not like going back to restaurants. Life is normal, you know, V-shaped recovery. That's just going on a walk. So it's, it's potentially right. going to be two, two and a half months before I can leave my house. 
Right. Um, and uh, the, the interesting thing you say about that is too, like they're obviously spent, I know you're heavily based too in California, LA, I think it is, or in, yeah, spent my family's from there. in Vegas or, or other areas you, you travel around, you do a lot of poker stuff. We're going to cover all that. Um, but so you're basically saying you're predictably like you're, you're ahead. Like basically you could almost look at the U S and say, okay, this is, you're actually this far behind. So in, in reality, yeah. the U S could, do you have an estimate on the U S when you think that things will get back to normal, like, or even where people should be? Cause right now it's, it's kind of weird. They're not saying you can't go outside in a lot of areas and it's, it's, it's different. Right. So like, do you, do you anticipate June? Like when do you think it's like, all right, people are going to go back to restaurants and things are going to be back to normal. Like when yeah, you think so I, I, I have like a little bit more of a bearish view on this. I'm a really optimistic person. Like people know me and know that I'm like very upbeat glass half full, like very optimistic about all my content and everything. Um, I actually don't see that happening. Uh, like I, a lot of, a lot of this is just based on the study I read out of Imperial college where they, they predicted that there's like the, the sort of like hopeful best case scenario is that um, there's like an intermittent economy where you have like two months of lockdown and a month of limited interaction. But if you just think about it logically, like, okay, let's say, okay, now it's over, it's June. What are we going to do? We're just going to reopen the economy. Everything's going to resurge and we're going to close it down again. I mean, just logically, like, how is this, how is this, what is the end game here? And the end game is, is, is one of two things in, in, in my mind. And it's quite binary. There's either herd immunity, which means uh, 60%. And, and for the, the, the rate of infection of this disease, you need 60% of people, uh, what the experts saying that you need 60% of people infected to have herd immunity to where the disease yeah. doesn't spread to, to exceed the hospital capacity. So that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. And if it does, we're going to have dramatic consequences to the hospital system. So we need that to happen slowly. So the only real solution I see here is, is, is just a vaccine. So I'm actually planning on life not returning to normal for 18 months from when they started working on it, which is about 16 months from now. That, that's just really what I see happening. You, I mean, when you, I'm more on your thought process or your belief. Like I, yeah. some of the smartest people I know have even saw this coming right away, like the exponential growth and realizing it was, you know, it's just kind of disappointing that the leaders like, Trump or in the US, but other other world leaders weren't really more be able to get ahead of this, right? Because like they have scientists or the doctors and people smart, really smart yeah. people that are experts in that particular field that saw this probably, or were seeing it happen and developed. It's like a you know, slow moving car crash and just could, you know, I guess it's not easy to shut down borders and control a country, right? And have everyone just, you know, you know, shut everything down. But it does seem like it could have been, there could have been more to prevent this situation. Well, there, there's a great quote by Michael Levitt, who I think was, uh, I forgot his position, but he was prominent in this industry. And he basically says, everything you do before pandemic seems alarmist and everything you do after seems uh, um, inadequate. And that's because pandemics grow exponentially. You know, exponential, people aren't hardwired to think exponentially. So most of my content has been raising awareness about what exponential is and why it's different than linear. So linear, you take 30 steps, it's 30, right? One, two, three, four, five. You take 30 steps exponentially. Most people don't realize you're at a billion. Right. Okay. So 30 and a billion are very, very different. So that's Mm -hmm. why when there's a hundred cases, when there was a hundred cases and case one arrived in Italy, I I didn't go around a single person. So when when I saw that case one was in a town near me, I was like, you know, the market's going to implode. This is over. Like it's, it's, it's going to hit the U S it's going to be a pandemic. Like all these things were inevitable in my mind because you you have a disease that's spreading it doubling every three days there's just no way this doesn't, this doesn't yeah. happen. I started sounding the alarm in February and I was like, and I saw what happened here and I was just like, the U S market is not pricing this in, this thing's going to implode. And I still don't think that they're 
really pricing in how this whole thing yeah, because over that, a long period of time. That's the interesting part when you start saying, you know, because the, the U.S. Is like I even my uh, financial advisor actually like literally 20 minutes ago messaging me because I was basically I'm, I'm back and forth. Like, do I want to pull everything out right now? Because right now there's like a nice surge up but based on what? Because there was like yeah. trillion, two trillion dollar uh, influx into the economy. But w- if there's no restaurants, there's no work, there's no nothing's happening and no one's going out. No one's moving. How is the economy going to move? Like, yeah, what, I started- what, What's I got out of here in February. I was like, I'm, I'm completely yeah. gone. I was I, zero but, equity positions. But th- so you really think restaurant, like what, how, what does that mean if restaurants and things aren't open for 18 months and movie theaters and, and sports? Like you don't think we'll have well, sports, sports? Forget games. about sports. Sports, that's, there's no chance. That, like that's like the NFL in September, they're saying there's no way the NFL. No goes. chance. No yeah, because also how would they, even if you could, it doesn't even make sense, right? How would you do it? You would just have no fans in the stadiums, the players. Yeah, that's a possibility. So when I say no chance, I mean return to normal. That's my yeah. opinion. Again, I could be wrong, but like, I mean, you're, the, the the thing that look, I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an economist, I'm not a global macro investor. What I do do is I listen to all the people that are the smartest. Mark yeah. Lipsitch, the, 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 the ex commissioner of the FDA. These people treat tweet their advice for free. Nicholas, uh, I forgot his last name. I, I retweet all these people. You can follow me on Twitter. Just look who I'm following. All the people that are the smartest are the most concerned. So the people that are the furthest away on the on the end of the spectrum that are saying the most ex- seemingly extreme things are the all the people that know what's going on. So if you right. listen, you know what I mean? That's the thing that's the most concerning yeah. about this. And it's been like that from the beginning. People are like, oh, we couldn't have seen this coming. It's like, no, every epidemiologist and virologist saw this coming in January. They were all sounding the alarm. Nobody was listening, but they were sounding the alarm. Right. Well, yeah, I, I you know, I actually think I had it. Um, I'm pretty sure. But now I'm not, I'm not really sure the timeline on when stuff happened. And exactly, you know, I, exactly. Like I, I had all the symptoms around the Super Bowl. So like early February. Oh, wow. Um, and I, and I, I had like the weirdest cough. I had bad fever. I was in bed for like days. Couldn't like, just like shot. Like my whole thing was shot. Like it, that was just like a bad cold. And there was someone that we knew who came, he came, uh, he's from Andorra, but he was in South Korea and he wow. came and visited. And then after we all got sick, he was really sick. And I, you know, I don't know, like, I'm not saying I had it. I'm just saying, I, I think I might've had it. And that's like, that's sort of the, 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 the thought about it is like, there's no way to like for a while, no one even knew, or there was no testing or no one even yeah. knew. What, right? You so need an like, antibody test. Really? That would be the best thing if they can do antibody tests. Yeah. 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 It's uh it's, it's an interesting thing. I don't want to spend the podcast. I know we can, I know we can talk about this forever. But if forever more, very, very my thoughts, just check out alectrelly.com. I put out my predictions and seven things I think are coming about this and, but you are you're you're bullish and you do think that we're there's going to this is not this is the world has changed. You're pretty much like saying this is like, you know, do you, do you feel people no, I'm bearish? No, I'm not bullish. I'm, oh, bearish. Sorry, I'm sorry. You're, you're bearish. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I, yes. You don't you don't believe it's <clears throat> you're on that side of the fence and you believe that. Do you think like we'll be wearing masks even in like a year from now to go outside? Stuff like that. Like We're going to be in this scenario until there's herd immunity or a vaccine. So there's, there's like, there's, it's just binary, right? So you have to think that like nothing is going to change other than the curve is flattened to where the hospitals aren't overrun. So we can have a limited social yeah. interaction. But if you read Tim Ferriss put out a great post from a, from a, a person in the know that was a guest blogger on his website. And, 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 the, and the, the most alarming thing is this, the, the point at which you have to enact extreme social distancing measures to not exceed the hospital capacity is when the hospital's at 4% of capacity. 
So it doesn't really give you much room to reopen the economy. And you also have to think about psychologically, what are people going to do? Are people going to want to be in a crowded restaurant? Are people going to want to be around all these other people? Like the more people know other people that got sick right. and, and are close to other people, they're not going to want to behave and interact in the same ways. Yeah, There's a lot to it. You get, you get, you get comfortable too. You start, you get, you know, food delivery, you're at home and then you're just like, I don't think people are going to want to go back. I mean, yeah. obviously it's tragic people that lost their jobs, but the people that can telework aren't going to want to go back to work. And even people that uh, they say it's safe and it's okay to get back out there. It's like, you still probably right away, the second the door is open, you're not just going to necessarily run out or you're going to be like, all right, let's feel it out. Let's, let's take it slow. And yeah, yeah I mean, that's why I don't understand how restaurants can survive in these other places. Already the business is so, so tough, you know, cause the whole, thing just sort of like now nah, they're not paying rent or the landlords whatever so it's just like every and then people make excuses right and it's not even like unjust but it's like i can't pay this or i can't pay that well they could but they can use it as an excuse and like you know it's not like it's yeah. a last dollar necessarily and the whole system just sort of like everyone just is like slow paying or not paying and it's it's just like i, I just think that, that i just i guess my fundamental belief is that like market expectation and public psychology is here and reality is down here. And all this Delta is just not priced in yet. And I think we have a long way to go. And I don't mean the markets are going to come down this much specifically. I just mean like general macro view of, of the severity and what people think there, it, 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 there's a big Delta. And I think that my view is I'm on the bear side of that. All right. I got it. Stay safe, stay safe out there. And and it's interesting that, you know, you, uh, you are in a very hot zone and you you do provide a lot of content. So I think uh, that's interesting. People can check it out. I do want to show here. We do have the website, alectrelli.com. So you, you focus, uh, as, as well, we'll, we'll cover this, but you do go through the COVID-19 and you also have, uh, yeah on the blog blog area there. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cover, go through that. But first, you know, I want to, I want to just kind of dive in cause you are, I'd say one of the more active and content oriented people in poker. I, I put you in a short list, you know, we could rattle off some names. Some have been on the podcast before, but you do, you've been very active for a long time with this. So tell us a little bit about your, 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 how you got into poker. Give me a little bit of briefing, how you went this route because poker, you played high stakes cash, played tournaments. You do a lot of yeah. that. You're more into the content side. So give people a little background on your poker journey. Yeah. I mean, poker started for me. I'm, I mean, I'm 33, but I'm a dinosaur in poker. I started playing when I was 16. So I had a long poker career until I started creating content. And I, I, I had got to a point where, um, and I started playing during the moneymaker boom and I did well early on. Like i I did well online in high school and I, I dropped out of college at 18, but I made a final table of a tournament and was one of the biggest winners online in 2007. So I had, I had success early on. I had a lot of, it wasn't all history. I had a lot of ups and downs along the way and made a lot of mistakes in my career. But um, by the time I got to around 2012, I was playing in, in Macau. I moved out to Macau to play in some of the, some of the big games out there. And, and I, I like got to a point in my career where I felt like, you know, I've done a lot in poker and I've got to like, I've got to experience a lot. I, I learned a lot and I'm, I'm at the like the point in my poker career, specifically when it comes to playing poker, where I still love the game. I'll always love the game. I'll always want to have poker be a piece of a slice of the pie, but there's other things I want to do. And a lot of that comes to interacting with others and sharing. And, you know, poker is a, a solitary game where you like, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's you versus everyone else. So it's not a team sport. And I, I missed the, I had friends and whatever, but I missed like the social element of, being able to interact with other people in that Twitch, way. Man, you got to go live on Twitch. What's going on? That's, that's your, that, that's the, the answer for you. Have you, tried that? Have you done some Twitch? Do you, do you, I know you're uh, on YouTube, but. 
I do. I really commend the people that do Twitch. I have mad respect because I know how much more work that is in a lot of ways because you have to be there. Whereas YouTube, you can do on your own time. You can edit your videos and, you know, you could produce a piece of content and it's five minutes, whatever. Twitch is five hours. Um, So I just wasn't able to commit that with my lifestyle. And and I I feel like YouTube is more my pace or podcasts or or social media. Um, But it basically just came out of a desire to like share content and things I've learned. And I wanted to get into speaking and and writing and um, I like video. And so YouTube was a natural fit. And I just basically started, you know, I traveled around the world playing poker and I just started saying, Hey, I'm in this city. Here's where I am. This is a cool place. And let me uh, talk about a hand of poker I played. So I just started this show called the hand of the day where I just shared a hand of poker I played randomly around the world. And that, that caught on. And that was like my content from the beginning of my, my YouTube journey. And I think it was 2014 or something. And and when did you actually start this YouTube? Because you have a lot, a lot of videos, a lot of different subject matters. When did you get into this? Uh, how did you How did you decide? Like, was there was there someone who did it in poker? Or a different type of channel? Who who got you to go ahead and start up a YouTube channel? It was just kind of like my wife and I, I. I was in a hotel room in Monaco playing the like playing. I think it was playing the. 100k tournament, the high roller tournament, and then you know the five or 10k main. I forgot it changes size every year, and some cash games. And I was like, you know what? Like, like I have a story to tell, and I think that like I'm doing something interesting that people would find interesting. Like, why don't I? Like, what am I going to do? And so I think that was it. Six sick bluff and the EPT Monaco high roller. I think that's the first hand I remember sharing, <laughs> and you're, you're seeing it there. And I was like, there was this really cool hand that I want to talk about that I saw. Let me just you know, my wife just took the iPhone and she filmed the video of me and I'm just like, let me open, like, just put it on this YouTube. Right. So I just uploaded it. And then I like, every time I played an interesting hand, I would upload it. And then like people started watching and, you know, and then I just kept doing it. Uh, obviously it grew from there and there's, you know, there's more to it, but like, it was just kind of like this burning desire to share things. And finally, you know, the pain gets big enough, you make a change. And then, then, then that's what it was. How, how important do you feel that is in, in these type of ventures and things to just go ahead and dive in? Like you said, you just uploaded a video because you were probably a bit uncomfortable. You know, it's like, oh, your wife, she's like, do this. And it's just like, oh, I'm going to throw it up. And it's like going to look weird or it's not edited right or the camera's not right or it's going to look yeah, so like, was, totally. that, was that uncomfortable or did you just, was that something you just, after you did one or two, you're just like, all right, I'm just going to do it. Because I mean, you have a yeah. lot. I mean, perfect's the enemy of done, right? So like, I think in the beginning, you really have to just accept that it's not going to be what you want. And I think people see like, well, let's just use like a podcast, right? You see your setup. It's beautiful. We were talking about it off the air. You got this beautiful setup in Miami or Joe Rogan. And you're like, Oh, well I can't start unless I'm like the person that I'm looking up to who I want to be. I want to be, let's say I want to be Joe Rogan. I want to have this podcast where there's these brilliant minds and these beautiful microphones and a team. I don't have that. I can't start. And it's like, what you don't realize is that nobody starts on that level. Unless you're, you know, you have $10 million and you're just dropping it into your new venture, but like people don't start at that level. So you all start at a level where you're going to be embarrassed about if you look back five years later, but you know, nobody is who they are. They they never started as that person. So yeah, there was that, there was that aspect of it for sure. But like I said, I think it's a, it's a situation where like you, you're comfortable in whatever you're doing and you have something you want to do or you want to start and that, it sort of like eats away at you slowly, right? And you feel a little bit of discomfort or pain around that activity. But eventually you you realize one of two things, right? You realize that the 
activity wasn't as important to you as you thought it was. You don't make the change or make the breakthrough or go through the sacrifice to pursue that activity or the pain gets big enough that it compels you to do something different right. than what you're doing right now. And, and for me, it was the latter because this was actually really important to me. And most things in life are the former where I just say, oh, I would love to be this. I'd love to do that. But then you don't want to do it bad enough to, to put in the work or to go through the pain or to expose yourself to all the potential uh, insecurities you can feel around putting yourself out there to the world. In this case, when you're before you're ready, so to speak, or not before you're ready, but before you have some magnificent product. Um, right. I think it's really important to, to just do it and correct course as you go. Um, uh, has there, has there been a time, what's the longest period you haven't uploaded a video since like five years plus, it looks like you've been, you've been doing this. Has there been a period where you took a break or you're like, I'm not doing this or did you always been pretty consistent? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think there's been a period I took a break. You just, you I mean, just there's periods where I, there's periods where I produce different volumes of content. So I'll have periods where I produce, I also have another channel, youtube.com slash Alec Trelli. You're looking at conscious poker. So I have two YouTubes. Um, and the second one's kind of where the first one was, sorry. The second one's where the first one was a couple of years ago. Um, where, um, sorry, the second one's where the first one was a couple of years ago where I'm kind of just starting. I'm still getting my feet wet, whatever. But I think the longest period I've gone without uploading, not specifically a video, but sometimes I write great content. It's probably like two weeks a month. What's your, what's your other channel? It's, Al, it's just Alec Corelli. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just see it comes up where it says Alec Torelli. Uh, it does. I don't see, I see the, let me see if I could drop it in chat. Um, but I want to ask you about this, this uh, kind of your experience with YouTube as well, because I look here and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause you'll have, you know, the very same with my videos, like some videos, do do well like they they just sort of ignite and that obviously algorithms and different maybe the thumbnail or the title but i'm just like looking at do you remember your first video like a lot of these were like 2k 600 1k 5k 7k and then all of a sudden you had 101,000 views on maybe your fifth 12th video or so or 15th video do you why do you think that video in particular just like looking back here in the first 20 the one that got so many do you have any why would like that spark spark because i have some too that are like huge and i'm just sometimes like i don't understand why that is like so much bigger like what what how does that work i want to sound like uh you know some marketing guru that i know exactly why and whatever. And I could replicate the success formula, but like, honestly, this is like, I mean, there's some linear, there's some like threads that you can try and create through one video and another, but a lot of it's noise too. And one of the things that poker teaches you to do is separate the facts from the noise. So like, did you win money because you make made a good play or did you win money because you got lucky? And so when it comes to separating the facts from the noise with the YouTube videos, it's like, it's hard to find the thread of like, what is the one thing you did? And I have some videos, like I have very, I have a lot of polarity in my videos. So I'll have, you know, like a handful of videos, maybe five or 10 that have a hundred K, 200 K views. And then I'll have other videos that have two K views. And sometimes I release a video and I'm like, this one is going to be the one. And sometimes it does well, but other times I'm like, it's going to be the one and it gets two K views. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's so right. dope. I worked so hard on this video. I SEO'd it. I did everything. And do you have, do you have, well, how, how is your team right now? Do you have people that, that do your videos? Do you upload and they edit, do you edit your own or a mixture depending on what it is or how, it, it, how so it's, it's really a mixture. So I, I have people that work with me and I have people that freelance and I have people that are more ongoing. It just sort of depends. Um, and it depends on the videos. So like the, the the coronavirus videos, I did them all myself because I really wanted them to look a certain way. It was delicate content. I wanted 
the images to appear when I wanted them to appear. So I actually edited all those videos myself. So if you want to see my editing, look at, look at the COVID videos yeah. on Conscious Poker or Alec Torelli. Um, but then other times, like obviously putting hands in the replayer, we have our own like Conscious Poker branded replayer. I have like- Also share my pair, right? That's what I Yeah, do. exactly. Yeah. Through Share My Pair, but it's our own conscious poker background. Share My Pair is great. They have a, really a lot of flexibility to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll have someone put the hands in the replayer or like my hand of the day videos. Those are all edited by uh, an editor. Um, and then when it comes to like uploading, like um, I'll usually upload it, but then I'll have a graphic designer make the thumbnail and he has access to my YouTube. And then sometimes I have help with SEO. Sometimes I do it myself. Um, so it just depends. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. So that, so yeah, so you do a full, full mix. It's not, it's not always one way or the other, but you definitely, you know how many videos you have roughly on there? It's a lot, right? I mean, it's like you have 500, 300, 600, 500. So that's definitely one of the more, more active uh, in, in the, in that space. So that's yeah. pretty cool. It's, not, it's also fun. Like I, you know, similarly, I have a decent YouTube portfolio now where it's, it's building. Yeah, you put out a ton of content, dude. It's, it's not only like YouTube, you're on Twitch, you're, you're, you're on Instagrams. That helps though, because the the uh, the the Twitch is like highlights, so it's almost like you do the Twitch and then you can re you know pour it into the highlight video on. But YouTube. you have an editor that repurposes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have a couple, couple, you know, people that do it. Vadrian in particular, he he uh, edits my stuff and does a lot of the, the posting and content because it is it gets to be a little overwhelming. And and what what point did you decide to do that? Because I, I think it's like it's hard you know, you have to, it takes money to make money that, that whole age old thing you got to, but also at some point it's like, you have to decide, all right, I'm doing this. If I spend this, it may not be the right. It seems like, I don't know if I want to do that, but really you understand that that's going to grow your brand, right? It's going to leverage it. And then there's a opportunity cost. If you're doing the videos and editing, when you really should be doing some, you know, more content, you know, how, how did you come up and decide, was that a hard for you to pull the trigger and sort of expand your team? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, 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 so it's, it's a couple things, right? Like I didn't have a clear business plan. I wasn't, I didn't have, I didn't launch my YouTube with a training site on the back end. My conscious poker came, I think three years after. So like right. three years of just like what, 300 videos I probably made in those three years. So 200 videos. So like, I didn't have this like, you know, I'm going to invest and have a business plan. And then each lead, each subscriber is worth this much. And I'm going to get them into a funnel. And like, <laughs> that wasn't on my radar. So, um, but at the same time, I was doing well in poker and I could afford to have like an editor. So first it comes down to also like, what is your business plan and what can you afford? And if, if, it, if there is a business plan element, you have to think of like, how much time is this person going to save you and how much time is that worth to you? And then how much potential ROI can this, per this person have on your, on your brand and business. Another thing though, is that it got to a point where I was like wanting to work at a certain speed, but I was limited because I had to do so much of the, of the stuff. And so that pain gets big enough where you're like, I, I can't express a message I have or my thoughts, I can't be who I am because I'm spending more of my time doing all these other tasks that aren't my core competency. I'm not good at them. There's someone that's better. And ultimately I, they can be outsourced. Whereas I can't be outsourced. I can't be, I can't replace myself on this podcast with you. So I have right. to be here, but I don't have to be in the lab editing a video. So it's the balance there. And ultimately what I've always done is really trusted my intuition and also trust that like the right people will come in your life at the right time to help get you to where you need to go. I'm like a big believer in that, but it's also been like really trusting like my intuition. And then I think also 
it really helps you see and and figure out how much you value something. So like if you're if you it's kind of like you hit these crossroads in life to help you understand like where which direction you want to go and like when it's time to invest whatever five hundred dollars into into hiring someone to do something. Do you really value that person enough to pay that five hundred, or would you rather allocate the five hundred to something else like traveling or a subscription or anything? Right, and there's no judgment there. It's just it helps people understand what they value, and so I think that's a personalized decision. And for me, I would kept increasingly realize that that building content online was something I valued more and more. Yeah, I I definitely can. I, I agree with you on this. Um, I have an interesting in live on our live in the chat right now. MT says I have just got home from cycling around Hyde Park in London, ironically near Imperial College, and there are hundreds of people relaxing. Uh, very different to Italy, Alex. So this is this is sort of you, re, you referenced Imperial College some early in the show and some of the information you you read. I believe I don't know if it's the same one or what he's referring to, but um, what what are your thoughts on that? Do you believe like they're the London or U.S. and places are just letting not really like locking down? Is this a ma- major mistake? Because is it airborne? I've heard different things out saying seventy percent transmissible by air in closed spaces. You know, versus originally I think it was like oh it's like if you touch a surface someone touched. You know, but if they cough or like how far away you should be. Uh, how, how big a deal do you think this is that people are in a park and just kind of like laying out in, in, in an area? Yeah. So like, uh, okay, so I'm not a scientist, so this is above my pay grade in terms of like how much it transmits via air. My understanding is sounds like the same as yours. Whereas originally we thought it wasn't airborne. Now it sounds like it is. And this is why I just look at the measures that Italy takes, for example, this is why, and, and China, this is why you're not allowed to leave the house because you also can't trust people to like not interact with other people. So for example, when we were allowed to leave the house in Italy, people weren't going to the cities because everything was closed. What was happening? Everyone went to the parks. So the parks became more crowded than the cities and naturally people were interacting. They were touching things. They were sitting on benches. They were having picnics. They were walking, they were running and they were around other yeah. people. Yeah. Or they're chatting, right? Cause it's like, they're like, Oh, it's safe. Or it's like, I'm not, there's no surface. I'm out in an area. And then they're talking, it's like two, three, four feet apart, but they're still too close. And yeah, whatever, you know, so like, yeah, it's, it's, I, I think, I think you're right. You mentioned it's like in order for this to really work, you just kind of have to go overboard and be like, yeah. no one do anything because yeah, you're touching elevators, you go down the stairs, you're touching the railing, people aren't paying attention, whatever. It's like it just it just causes things to happen. If you want to really shut it down, you got to just go overboard. It seems like. That, yeah, that's why I like that quote is so good because everything you do before seems alarmist. Everything you do after seems inadequate. And, it, and we've really seen that here in Italy where it's like they, they took incremental measures to shut things down incrementally like they've done in every country, right? They start slow and then they add more and more and more. And, and we see that happening in the U.S. The U.S., again, is probably just six weeks behind. So they're starting to add more and more. You see the governor of New York doubling the fines for people going out and social distancing. All this is going to happen everywhere as the disease spreads. I hope it doesn't spread everywhere, but if it does all these people are going to take these incremental measures from, you know, stage one, stage two, stage three, where we should just go from one to five because it's inevitable to get to five, but it's easier to just mitigate, you know, less damage ahead of time. For sure. sure. Yeah. I wrote a piece on, you know, the UK's approach to uh, COVID and the herd immunity. So that's on AlexTrelly.com too. Scroll down a little bit. Scroll down. No, no. Yeah, there you go. So there's a piece on herd immunity. Um, Again, I'm not a scientist. I just I talked to my thoughts about it psychologically and why I thought herd immunity was not going to work, basically, because uh, you can't just tell people that you think you're going to let them not make it in the hospital. I think that's not going to win. And one of my theses was basically that even if 
people always come up with this narrative that like, you know, the damage to the economy is more than the cause of the lives that we're saying. Even if that's true, that doesn't even matter. I don't, I don't know if there's an equation for, you know, economic output to translate to live saves. It's kind of like apples and oranges. But even if there was an equation, the politicians that favor the economic situation are just not going to win because people are going to be dying in hospitals. And that's always going to trump, uh, you know, what humans value in terms of importance, which is why I was saying that I think we're not going to see like massive reopenings of things because people are going to increasingly demand that they're not going to support that, you know, as hospitals fill up in their area. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's fascinating. Um, it is fascinating. It, it it's really, tragic, but it's also fascinating. Fascinatingly sad. Yeah, it's uh, it's a. <laughs> right, I'm looking. Yeah. At, you know, you have very, very, uh, very well done. Very, very nice organized. So your website is. You know, it's, there's not many poker player backgrounds that have uh, what, like nice up to date website stuff that's getting done and, and articles and things. So yeah, guys check that out for sure. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about your beginnings in poker, even like how you got into it. We're around the yeah. same, I think the almost exact same age within you know, it's a year uh, I'm born in 86. So we're around the same kind of poker boom time. Yeah. Like, you remember, you know how you first got online and also want to know how your family reacted to you playing poker for a living. Was that something they were supportive or not? So tell me a little bit about how you like first did you see on TV? Was it a friend brought you to it? How did you yeah. start? Fair enough. Okay. So I'll go back to the, back to the beginning. So I was 16. Um, I got invited to a friend's house to play Texas Hold'em because Chris Moneymaker had just won the main event. Uh, it was 2003 and you know, Hold'em was booming. And so, um, I got invited to this guy's house that I was friends with, but he was friends with other people that I wasn't as close with. And these were like, kind of like the cooler kids in school. Um, and so I, I sucked at sports and I was in musical theater and like, I didn't make the freshman basketball team and I dropped out of football and like all this stuff. So it was cool because I went there and I won my first time playing. And like they say about any, you know, any gambler, the worst thing that could happen, or in my case, I guess the best thing is you win your first time because then you're hooked. Right. So I won and I beat these other people that were like, any other situation they would beat me in. But like, because we were playing this card game and it was probably mostly luck that I won. I wasn't good at the time, but I thought I was good. But anyway, I wanted this game. And so that was really exciting for me. And I, I just fell in love with poker. Yeah. And, um, I started reading super system and all the books I could. And, you know, I got to look here just because this is honestly, I'm going to go. I've had, I think you're, this is podcast number 56. We'll go through your hen and mob sort of stuff as well. I know you, you have a cash game kind of bigger background. And, and yeah, you're, you're not going to find as much on head mob but, as you would. But I, I do want to point out just because I do this every time. I swear out of 56 people, their first ever kind of mob cash is a final table. It's just like automatic. Like, you know, like if you look here and you have actually a lot, a lot of pretty deep runs or early on in, in some of these tournaments where it's kind of, kind of crazy that you're you know again it depends on the field size and of course you don't everyone doesn't cash their first ever tournament because it doesn't yeah. show if you don't cash but the fact that like your first actual cash is a final table i just find that kind of interesting i wonder if there's anything to that where guys are it just like it gets you kind of hooked to hit that like final table right like early for a score oh, yeah it's like, i mean i see that it's honestly like 50 <laughs> i would bet 50 plus of my guests well 98% of my poker guests, because some aren't poker, but have final, like their first hand and mob is a final table, which I just find it kind of bizarre. Like, yeah, that's all true. Time. And I, um, I, uh, so I was 19 at the time I was, uh, in college and I had qualified for that event. Um, and it was actually during my like semester break. 
So I felt that I can go to Aruba, play the event, and then come back in time for school. Right. And we were only allowed to miss three classes, but I wasn't expecting to make the final table. So I made the final table and I missed like, you know, I had to stay through like an extra couple of days. And so I missed my flight. I couldn't get on the next flight. And so I missed enough school. When I got back, I got dropped from a lot of my classes, but like okay. that experience of like, going, it was a WPT at the time. It was a huge event. It was televised. This is the back. first one, the, the, the 5k you're saying in 06 or no? Yeah. I that played was, one other tournament before that. I think that I qualified for, but this was my second like major live tournament. And my first live tournament was in the Bahamas that I qualified for while I was there. So I went with a friend who qualified online and I, I played that event while I was there. So yeah, this was, you know, really early on for me. And I had a few of these events happen to me early. Like I won my first time playing my, one of my first tournaments I played online, I turned $30 in the near like 2,500 in um, my first deposit online or my second $50 deposit. Okay. What was your first site? Party poker. Amen. All day. It, yeah, I mean, too, as well. It's kind of funny because it, it really was there. And they, yeah, they were the, that, that those games were insane. Like the, the early days yeah. I remember being in college, it was just crazy. Like guys were, you know, six max cash. It was like eight, eight off was like full buy-ins all in pre for however many blinds. So like it was just, when, when did you get into online and party? Uh, it was in high school. I was uh, a yeah. sophomore, junior, sophomore in high school. I remember French sending me $50. They had those, exactly. those bonuses where it was like, send 50. If you sign someone up, they get 50 and you get 25 when they play 120. I actually built my sort of bankroll and got going was uh, the affiliate business. Oh, me too. They, they had those like, they would give you these bonuses where it's like, all right, you get this this month, you get like two grand if you sign up 10 guys. And then the next month they'd be like, we'll give you an extra two grand plus whatever. So I, was, I mean, there's months I was making like six, eight grand in college from just like, I would sign up 30 people in a dorm, sign, give, send what? them $50 each. And then I would get all the bonuses plus, you know, they would release it. And I would, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was my whole like freshman year of college. That's what I was doing. Was signing that's up what I did too. People. I did the exact same thing. I they literally went door to door and I just made accounts for people. At the end of the month, you got paid. Plus, I would make money playing poker. Yeah, wow, we yeah. have the exact same. That's literally what I did my story. freshman year of college. And that, yeah, so that's, but that was crazy time. So you were there right at the, right there, man. What, what, what stakes were you playing then on party at that time? Were you playing like 25 cent 50, one, two, or just whatever? Like, no, I was playing, playing, I was playing. Like I remember the day that I was in high school playing two four, which was the biggest game online. And I remember the day that they opened. No, no, I was playing one two. Excuse me, which yeah, was the biggest okay. game online. And I remember the day they opened, and it was the same day they opened two four three six and five ten. And I was still in high school. I logged into Party Poker in the morning just because, like, I would like log in obsessively and just check the games or whatever, even though I wasn't going to play. But I logged in that morning and I saw there were new tables for two four three six and five ten. So I called my friend Ryan. I was like, dude. There's there's high stakes team. We got to school and go to the internet cafe and go play. So right. we went, went to school. We signed in for first period. We did school. Went to the internet cafe and played two four and three six, which was above our bankroll, but we did it anyway. But um, that was in high school. And then yeah, in college, I was playing around those stakes too. You know, depending on how much I would win and lose, I was didn't have the best bankroll management. So <laughs> yeah, I, I remember being. At, I went to University of South Carolina and I played. I played soccer there. And I remember like study hall bringing. I remember laptop. Like I got my first laptop. Like going into college and then you know going there and bringing. I remember having it in classes and playing like party online and just like it was just like crazy, man. It was just like it was the it was the coolest thing to play poker in college. It was it was really fun. Where did you go to school? Uh, Southern Method Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. 
Oh, you went to SMU. Cool. Yeah. We played, they were in our conference for soccer. I went there a few times and I had some friends there. That's, uh, that, that's that. How, how was that being on campus life and playing? Were you playing like every day? Was that like, oh, yeah. playing, 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 Dude, I didn't even it? go to like some of my classes at all. Um, was it, was it very, where other friends or people there was poker like popular in college or were you one of the only ones playing it? It, it honestly, like it was more popular in high school, be- I guess, because I was so plugged into the community that like everyone that I was friends with in high school was playing. And then like we would play against other people in other high schools. So it felt like there were more people in high school, whereas college was more like siloed and people thought it was like kind of crazy. And like, right. There were a couple people playing, but not really, man. I felt like I was really on my own in, uh, and, in high and school. Did your parent in high school, did your parents know where people like were your family, your brothers, sisters or? No, I, I stepbrother, uh, step sister. Um, but um, no, so and my parents knew that I was playing, but I mean, healthy dose of caution. They were like supportive in so far that I was like, okay, you know, uh, I had money saved up that I was using, and I made my own money. I was right. I had a flyer delivery company where I pass out flyers to make my own money. So I used my own money to play poker and they were like, we're not giving you any money, no allowances, which I was like, totally fair. They don't want money going to gambling, which was fine. Um, They were like supportive, but then like, you know, clearly like you have to make this like, it's just a side thing and school has to be the priority. And um, yeah, rather supportive when I dropped out of college, which I was 18 at the time. And so what, what year, how many years of of school were you in? You were what first year? Yeah. Three months. months. You dropped out right away. So I decided to drop out and then I was like, I'm going to take the rest of the year off. I had this party poker affiliate business. I was doing very well with that. Um, I wonder if he was the same guy. Cause I was like, I had the whole, you know, I, I forget his name. Uh, I would know it if I saw it, but I remember those like Mike Sexton cards. Do you remember those little, the, <laughs> the Mike Sexton uh, affiliate things? Yeah. I had the whole packet and totally. were, yeah, that's crazy. That's literally the same thing. Exact same thing I was doing because they gave those crazy bonuses. Do the bonuses <laughs> like like sixty k bonus some months? Like if you hit a certain 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 uh, number of more than the month before. It was it was really insane. I mean, it's I, mean, I even had sub affiliates, so I had affiliates bro, under me. Bro, listen, listen to what I did. My freshman year, I, I lived in a, a dorm with four guys because we we played in the soccer team. So these are three other guys in my room, right? After our freshman year. I ended up giving them, I had them, I showed them the model and I gave them all money in their account. And I it was 20%. I remember exactly. Exactly. 20%. And I would, I sent them all like 5k and I said, here, sign up 20, 30 people, do this as your mission. And and they, they literally signed up 20, 30 people each. I did my stuff. And then we went to Cancun for our spring break, like for that, that year. And we we're all in the same thing. And it was all from party poker, uh, oh, yeah. no affiliate deals. I mean, it's exactly. Yeah, we had the same exact thing. So I bankrolled my subs and I taught them the model and then I took 20% and they paid me the 5k back. And yeah, yeah, I did the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. So we had the exact same. Dude, we're 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 both uh we're both yeah, on the that's not, yeah. You, you, you the affiliate business in poker it's been around for a while and it's gotten uh it's gotten different, but there's it, it's right. it's still very prevalent uh a very prevalent thing. So you you built you had a solid role. At what point were you saying you do you think you played more? Or were you focused more on that like that side of it? I was like like sort of 50 50 at a point where I was like my passion. All I wanted to do was play poker. But I mean, I had a month where I made 20 grand, 30 grand. I don't remember, but I mean, I had a month where I made a lot. And this was before, right. um, before they shut it down. But, um, but yeah, like I was making so much that I had months where I made more on the affiliate side of thing. And also it was like kind of easy money. Cause at some point I had like, 
people signing up because they had my link and I didn't even know where they got it. And I had people like my sub affiliates where I was making like five, seven K a month from subs doing nothing. And I was like, this is insane. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happened was they changed it because that's it. They were like, they looked at it and they were seeing these bonuses and the signups and then the people wouldn't play. Like they would give you the, them the 50, you the 25 or you the 50, them the 25. Um, And then what would happen is then they basically moved it to MGR where they were like, you know, you want, they want it to just be like a piece of what the player is playing. The rake, play, yeah. Which generally is better, but not in these scenarios where you're signing up people that don't know how to play poker. And they yeah. And like I'll, sometimes I would send people, I would sign them up and then I would send them the $50 because like I would make 200. So I would just bankroll yeah. everyone. Yeah. And then at the end of the month, I'd get this huge lump sum. Yeah. And so like these people weren't even playing or they were like college kids that didn't even know about poker. And they would be like, how do I play? And I would just, you know, they would, they would play for like 20 minutes, lose their $50 and be like, Oh, I don't care. This is fake money. They had to play 125 rake tans. I remember that was, that was was unlocking. Um, but yeah, man, crazy time. So, all right. Well, that's very interesting. That's, it is crazy. Dude, we could talk about this forever because I'm sure we have so many, I'm sure we both have so many stories because we, we lived this for years. Um, but anyway, back to my parents, they, they, they were supportive because they saw that I was playing poker and that I took poker very seriously and I was making money. And they also saw that I had this business. And I think that business really helped legitimize the poker side of things too. And they saw that I was like 50, 50. Uh, and then I ran it like a business. I mean, I had sub affiliates. I was like, I had like monthly revenue. And so um, yeah. I'm really lucky because I think having supportive parents is super important, especially at that point in your career. When you make a big life decision like that, I'm really close with my family too. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was luck. Yeah, it's for sure. That was definitely the right place, right time. Uh, let's look here at your hand and mob though. So you get in, you go through poker, you score, you get this package, you go down there. What was that like final tabling? Cause I mean, look at, I mean, eighth place, crazy difference in payouts. I mean, so top heavy in this one. Uh, look at the legend, uh, Cliff Josephy, Johnny backs there as well. But do you, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Some other. Oh yeah. 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 I remember all the hands and yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I could have played one hand different too. Um, anyway, it's not that important, but basically, you know, I, I got eighth where first place was a huge amount, but, um, you know, if things go one way different, you could win and whole thing. I got lucky to get eighth, but, uh, yeah, I remember cause it was like this huge event. It was like a WBT at the time. And also like all these people who I had read about in forms or I had chatted with in a form or that people said like Johnny Bax, Cliff Josephy, most people probably know him more recently because of the main event final table, but this guy was a legend at the time. Yeah, I mean, he's had always he had a stable of what, like 100, 200? I mean, they're they're putting everybody on the But he was like team. widely considered the best online tournament player in the world at that time. Like Johnny Bax was like the best tournament. So I, now I'm like, I'm like 18 years old. I just dropped out of college, or maybe I was 19 at the time because I actually went back to college a year later for a semester. This might have been my second time back to college. I'd have to think about it a little more, but at 18 or 19. Um, and I'm like, now I'm at a final table of a televised live event, like with the guy who's like the best ever. And like, I'm, you know, we played pots where we're in hands and we're like reading each other. And it's like, so, I mean, it's like super impressionable to have this happen, you know? And then also at this event, um, at the first event I went to in the Bahamas and this event in Aruba, I, there were like a scene of other elite online players that you had either chatted with online or you were on the forums with, and you got to meet all these people in person. Right. So I was like, I remember Andrew Robel and I were like hanging out at Aruba and we were like friends at this point. Cause we met in the Bahamas or Tom Dwan or, or David Benefield. Like I'd seen these people and we'd like talked and like these people became, you know, huge at poker and like yeah. to see other people that had uh, dropped out of school. Like uh, I think Benefield dropped out of TCU. Don't quote me on this, uh, but Robel had dropped out of school and like other people like Tom, like had like 
you know, we're, we're doing this and like Tom and Dave were living together in, in Texas and like this whole thing where like people were actually doing it and seeing other people that gave me so much confidence. And then of course I win 40 K and I'm like, you know, I could do this. Right. So yeah, you were at, at Echelon and you kind of, you kind of went through there and I see, I mean, yeah, it's funny to look back on some of these tournaments and see some of the names and some of the guys that are, that are still in there and, and just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a wild, it's wild. There's not that many people that have withstood in poker the test of time or are still in it or do something, you know, kind of similar to poker. So, I mean, you, you are, I mean, how many years now? So you've basically been playing six, 17 years, 16 years, right? 17 in there. years. Yeah. 17, and, I just turned 33. So what would be your message to someone that is uh, that's sort of like looking right now? Cause I mean, obviously that was like sort of the golden time of poker. And, and now, you know, there's, there's some States that are coming on Michigan, big, big one, uh, Pennsylvania, yeah. some serious traction sports betting, legalized at a federal level it's a big deal state by state some stuff piggybacking on with that and, and likely online poker will follow suit what, what would you say to oh, someone who's like who's thinking about getting into poker and doing it for a living now how would you give them some advice versus maybe back when we started in terms of like whether or not they should do it or what their should approach should be once yeah, they let's say, let's say there's it's kind of like two questions kind of if they're young like they're in their young 20s you know they, they're maybe they don't have a relationship or married or kids you know they're, they're looking for something to do as a, as a strong side hobby or supplemental income uh what would be some advice you would say to someone who wants to try to to break into the poker scene to make a living playing i would say that like it's it's a young person's game i think and i i think you you can break in at 40 if you want but to give to, to dedicate your life to poker, I think is a young person's game. Uh, and I think you're at the perfect stage to do it if you're young, but I think you also have to like be responsible and you have to like allocate your money properly and have really good bankroll management. I think that's probably the most important thing just yeah. because you can be the best player in the world and go broke. And I think what you're going to realize if you're, you know, you're starting out in your twenties that one day you're going to, you might always want to play poker, but you might not want to have to play poker. And even the percentage of the people that play poker and reach the top and that are uh, you know, amazing players, not that many of even those players, right? So we're talking about the 0.01%, not even that many of those players are what you would consider a lifer, meaning they don't want to always play poker. They, they leave poker. And you see this happen with even people like Fedor's quitting and Nicholas Heinecker and like people that reach the top. So um, there are some people that are lifers, but there's some people that aren't. So I think poker is, is great because it teaches you a lot of like life skills, but then you also maybe consider how you're going to translate those into an, another side hustle or another business long-term. And I know that's kind of thinking ahead of time, but um, you know, maybe going all in on poker now is, is good to help you figure out to get, you know, to li- live an awesome life and you could travel and make money and work on your own. And you know, it's, it, it, prov- it could provide a great lifestyle, but then also be thinking about the future and basically realize that, the, the money that you save or make playing poker is, is the leverage you're going to be able to use to give you options in that future activity. And even if you don't know what that is now, realize that it will very likely be there even more so exponentially growing if you have a family or wife and kids. Yep. And so give, save as much as you can. Don't make silly decisions with your money. Be very frugal and give yourself as many options to buy yourself time to not have to work because you're going to need to spend six months to a year building your net 
hustle, but you haven't succeeded at that other thing, or you need money to invest in whatever project. It's likely a combination of both the things I just said, but you may need money to invest in that project. So I would save as much as possible and don't do dumb shit with your money and uh, go for it. Have fun. All right. I liked it. That's, that's, uh, that's definitely good advice. And I think that it's easier said than done, but I think if you do look at, if you look at the the most talented players in the world or the top of the, you know, the game, if you were to, if you were to be able to back or select or be a part of someone's journey, I think it's safe to say, and what I hear you saying, and and I, I utter the same sentiment that you, you know, it's not necessarily the most talented or best player. You know, if you you start looking at bankroll, manage discipline, vices, um, work at oh, yeah. those type of things you could go down pretty far down the list and select someone that's going to be able to win and be successful than the top three player in the world or top 10 who's going to go broke who's going to make bad decisions who's going to be um you know different all types of things you you can really uh go ahead and and and, and uh it's basically it's like an athlete too right it's like you could find the most talented athlete in the world if he's lazy his work ethic's not there bad attitude not motivated you know these not type of things. yeah whatever. It's not going to be uh, – it's not not the guy you want, right, to be your franchise player, to be someone you want to back or endorse. Um, you, you would go pretty pretty far down the list to find someone that would be a better fit than that. So I think that's – yeah, it's a, it's a good way to look at it. Um, let's go over here to the Hendon Mom 2 with a result, a tournament result. This is like – so you weren't really yeah, – you were playing some tournament poker, but you do get to the World Series uh, 10K heads-up event. It's one of the funner, more fun events each summer. A lot of entries in this one. That's a crazy amount for the 10K. I think they usually get like – 100, 130 now max uh, at these last yeah. few years. And usually there's... This is when poker was really booming, you know, 2009, 2008. That's a crazy amount of rounds, man. A 453-person heads up. I mean, how many... I'm trying to even think. I guess there's buys, 128, 256, and then even like a big... Most of the people playing in that the round after that. So, I mean, that's a lot of matches. Yeah. How many days does this take? This must have been like three full days. Three days. Yeah, yeah. I think you played like two matches a day and... Damn, um, there was so like a close, so close 11, 11 a.m. and a 4 p.m. Yeah. yeah. So, so you got second to, to Kenny Tran. How, how, uh, how, how was that? How was that experience playing, playing heads up? It's, it's like the best worst result to have because, uh, you know, you're obviously the second happiest you can be financially. And like over time you, you, you accrue that pleasure of having the, the, the money you have, the, the, the options that the money brings you, you can move up in stakes, you can play bigger games, you can buy into more tournaments, yeah. do all the things you can do with the money. But also like the emotional side of it is like the hardest to handle is the second place finish because you're the closest to first place. So like if you get yeah. last place in a tournament or you bust a one, I've done many times, um, you're, you're not like, you don't feel any emotion around that bus, right? Like the, it's easy yeah. to kind of like let that one roll off of you because you're like, well, I didn't have a chance anyway. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't close. But getting second, yeah, getting second in the head, the 10K heads up or later that summer, I got fourth in the, I think it was a 15K world poker tour of Bellagio. Um, don't call me on the timeline. It might not. It might not have been that summer. It might have been the summer after, or, or in the forty k. I got sixth. That was later that summer, I think. Right, right. later that summer. No, that was two thousand nine. Sorry. So the forty k was two thousand nine, and then later that summer in two thousand nine, I got fourth in the Bellagio uh, World Poker Tour. And like those are the finishes that really stick with you because you know I replayed the hand in my mind that was the difference between me getting fourth and losing a coin flip to the guy that got first. And there were hands against Kenny that could have won other ways too. Um, that, you know, just, I replay those in my mind, even to this day. And that was like, you know, a decade ago, 
uh, just because, you know, could have been a first place finish. And obviously I got super lucky to get fourth. I could have lost the hand that allowed me to get fourth. So you can take it one standard deviation back. And, and I'm really grateful for the, the win and I don't begrudge my luck ever. That's the crazy thing about tournaments too, right? Cause it's so many, so often it's like, you don't even think about it, but when you go deep in a tournament, usually there were some suck outs or obviously winning flips or, you know, cooler situations. But when you get, down to it like uh, you often just remember the last hand or like the last yeah. match or the last situation you're like oh i can't believe that didn't go right or whatever but it's uh tournament poker is very violent it's very volatile both ways you know yeah, it's, you have a to, lot of variance you have to realize that you shouldn't have been there to begin with because like you know to me to get fourth for example when there were 10 people left i made a straight in a hand where i got paid off and i might not have got fourth if i didn't make the straight right making the straight is luck right I, did right. i play the hand well sure i played the hand well but i still made a straight right so like there's so and that, that could have happened infinite number of times maybe i want to point up on day one for a third of my stack that got me parlayed up there so i think people always have the tendency to like oh i got so unlucky to get fourth it's like no you got lucky to get fourth right so i'm really grateful for that um you know all my tournament results um and i had a lot of good results in tournaments i actually have like the ratio, the results I have to the ratio I've played is, is, is really like, I've done really well. And I'm not saying that to brag at all. I'm saying it because I've ran better than I probably, you know, I've ran very well in tournaments. I'm mostly a cash game player. So like, actually I like, like for example, in the last five years, I've probably played like, don't quote me on this, but maybe like five tournaments. I, I don't know. I played the main event the last three years. I think I've only played the main, um, I was living in Macau 2012 to 2015. I like literally didn't even go to Vegas for like two of the three summers I was there because there were high stakes cash games in Macau that were like bigger than what was going on in Vegas. So like I didn't even play a tournament. Um, so yeah, like I'm mostly a cash player, but um, so really you're, great you're runs, I've had in tournaments. Cash or tournaments, you're cash for all day then. Obviously you're not really playing tournaments much anymore. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like I went through a period where I did them more because I was doing very well. And like also like media exposure side was different. So we got like endorsements and I was like sponsored and there was just like so much more connection to the tournament scene at that time. Um, but yeah, I've always been like mostly cash for bread and butter. And I think um, I'm writing, a, I'm writing a piece on this about asymmetric bets that's coming out on AlecTrelly.com. I might be, it might be, well, you guys are watching this live, but if you're listening to a podcast, it might be out. Um, but basically my point is that like when you, when you have long shot bets and you have a very high risk, but a very high reward, those are great bets to make asymmetric bets. Meaning you can, you can risk a little and win a, you can risk a little and win a lot. That's a tournament, right? You risk a, win, risk 10,000, you could win a million. Um, those are great bets to make and you should have a place for those bets, but it's, it's also hard to have a, a business plan comprised of making asymmetric bets because you have to have very good bankroll management and you also have to have an extremely long sample size to be right. able to get in the, uh, the long term to guarantee that you're going to show a profit. Whereas cash games, it's a little bit more manageable. There's less volatile. You, you win 60% of your sessions. So the volat the volatility being, you know, a 10th of what it is in tournaments means that you don't have to, um, you know, it's easier to reach the long run. It's easier to make it a stable career. Right. And again, I've been in poker a long time and I know some people do tournament careers only and uh, mad respect and credit to them. But also there's, there's so much more variance, especially if you do a live tournament career, you might not reach the long run in your variance. So you can, you can literally play for two or three years and run below expectation. And like, 
you know, are you going to keep throwing out a quarter million a year running below expectation? Um, you know, right. so if you're playing online, obviously you can, you can, you can get a huge sample size or whatever. Um, but it just, it, it wasn't really my pace. So I always kind of had like an 80% cash game role and a 20% tournament role. And so I had these asymmetric bets with a, an insignificant part of my bankroll where even if I lost it all, I can still thrive with the 80% in the cash game. So that was always my pace, but it's obviously individual. For sure. Um, the, uh, the someone's asking about this. I, I saw this on Twitter as well. We're going to hit those questions. We do have a $55 Twitter giveaway courtesy of Party Poker. If you guys want to ask a question for Alec, we will do a giveaway at the end yeah, of the show. Thank you guys for all your questions too. And if I don't get to your questions on Twitter, I was thinking about this. Um, I, I would like to do something where I like took your questions and then made like little videos and put them on my YouTube where it's like, the, the, the good questions. I just like didn't ask Alec and threw it on my YouTube in a three minute response. So uh, look for my, on my YouTube uh, unconscious poker for those. If I don't get to your questions today. Awesome. Well, yeah, that, there you go. So we'll try to get to a lot of those, but if not, he'll, he'll Alec will answer a lot of them or go through it. Uh, and this here at this uh, moment, I'm talking about a F tops win. Uh, so speaking about the online, cause we're just looking at Hendon mob and that's on that's live, but you were playing tournaments for maybe a decent stretch or, or a fair amount. You fired yeah. a big series back in the day and you had a big F tops win. What was that? What did you win? What was the event and how did that affect your bankroll and trajectory? Yeah, that was, uh, that was huge for me. I was, um, so I was in Australia at the time. I just dropped out of college. I think I just dropped out of college for the second time. So I think I was 19. Same place. You went to SMU and then back I went back to SMU. Yeah. So I dropped out when I was 18 in October. I spent the whole year playing poker and, and whatever. I went back in the fall and then I dropped out in December. Like I finished the semester and I dropped out. So I think this January, right. At the end of December, I went to Australia and the, I decided to stay there because I loved it so much. Um, I went there for the Aussie Millions. I decided to stay there. So I got up one morning. It was like 4 a.m. in Australia. And I'm like, I'm going to play this, this F-Tops thing. And it was the biggest tournament in online history at the time. Started uh, at 4 a.m. Yeah, I think it was like, I, don't, don't quote me. I think it was right. 4 a.m. Australia. Awkward. It wasn't the optimal time to start a tournament. No, but it ended up being the optimal time because by the time it got to the final table, it was like, eight or 9 PM. So I wasn't tired at all at that point. You know, right. it wasn't 8 AM for me and I was exhausted. I was making all the best decisions when probably other people were tired, but I was like, Oh, it's only 8 PM. You know, I'm five plus high. There's adrenaline and whatever. Right. So I ended up winning this tournament uh, for a quarter million dollars in a single day. And I was playing decent stakes online at the time, but you know, this was a quarter million dollars. So I moved up to playing 2550 on party poker. Um, shout out party poker and uh that the games were just incredible and now i had the bankroll to play these games and i just really really crushed those games for a while and then i was also playing online on full tilt um and that allowed me to move up as well and take shots in bigger games those shots did well i parlayed that up and in 2007 i won uh a little over a million dollars on full tilt i was one of the biggest winners online that year so that all happened because you know this domino effect happened because i won that tournament if i didn't win that right. tournament i couldn't have won that million you, so look, looking back to winning you know, that tournament, huge. looking back to that, were you, was that specific event where you had got, did you wake up and you were like, I'm playing this one event? Oh, yeah. Were you playing four, six, eight, ten? Were you guys, how many tables were you playing? So, you know, what's ridiculous is, um, I, I did multi-table tournaments. I was never like super crazy. I mean, I, I went through a period where I did like nine tables on a laptop where I did the whole thing, but like yeah. that Sunday, I wasn't super crazy. I, I did play other tournaments. Um, I played the stars million as well. I, I don't know if it was called the Sunday million then, but I played yeah. the stars Sunday million. Um, you know, what's crazy is I actually got to like top 50 or 70 in the stars Sunday million. And I got it all in with Kings to aces and lost. 
Shit. Um, so I would like I was like I was deep in both of these things, and I'm like, holy shit! Like I'm like this is insane. Um, but then, but then, you know, as the day went on, like I was only two tabling, um, for like half the day because I was, you know, doing so well and focused and, um, but yeah, that was a crazy Sunday. Yeah. I, I feel my Amazing. biggest scores are always have been when I play like a couple tables or for whatever reason, I was only playing one or two. I mean, I don't know. It's just obviously it makes sense, right? You're focused, you're dialed in. And, and also it's actually that much bigger of an advantage because a lot of the guys are playing. It's like six, eight, 10 tables. Everybody so, is on, online. I mean, all yeah. the pros are, but yeah. think about it. Think about like one spot where like, you don't even think about it because you're playing autopilot poker when you're playing eight tables. So like, everything to people don't think they're making any mistakes and maybe they're not making mistakes, but what they're also not doing is finding opportunities. And so for yeah. example, let's say like, you know, your opponent opens and someone calls and you just fold because you're like, you know, you're just clicking buttons, you fold your cards. But what if you were only playing two tables and maybe it's the timing of the speed that the guy called, or maybe it's just because you've been paying attention a lot and you notice that there's a dynamic between these two players. And so one of the guys calling range is, is weaker than you think it is. And so you three bet now, or you four bet now yeah. when you wouldn't normally do that, but because like you're paying attention plan or ace three suited and it's trivial yeah. spot, it looks like, but really it's like the perfect squeeze spot. It's a perfect squeeze spot. Every time. It's going to give you credit and like, doesn't matter. And the stack sizes are perfect to exactly. like, handcuff where you're just like missing that every, every time you're six, eight tabling, you're just never going to take it, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 it's a fine line, right? I guess it depends. And that's, it's sort of like, all right, if you're going to play like one major buy-in, or do you want to play a lot of different ones? And it, it's it's just kind of uh, it's hard though. It's hard to put your eggs in one basket if your day is a Sunday and you play a tournament for six hours and you bust and you have yeah. zero extra backup. So it's I don't blame you. It's a it's a it's a formula. But I agree. I've always felt like there's the sweet spot though, where there's like diminishing return and and it just like kind of drops off a cliff. And I feel like like the real sweet spot is probably like you know three tables, but I usually play four. And if I play right. five or six, I, I regret it. Um, yeah, it's also, it's, uh, and that's something I've noticed and I just pick up or talk to people and also see, it's like, there is a way to really organize, especially if you've got like a second monitor, you, know, you can have like the lobbies up. You can see like, all right, I'm playing these four. If something goes wrong, I'll, I'll look at this or I know late reg is in this. It's a turbo. It's kind of whatever. I'm just going to like flick it in. Or you're down to 10 big lines. So you're like, okay, well, I'll just going to late reg this tournament if I bust, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's people I think that you know because there is it's like trading or anything. There's certain edges and, and ways to optimize. Like there's there's certain little advantages or tricks that like guys. You know, there's guys like Mormon or you look at B Paris or some guys that have ten million plus or the biggest online crushers or they're doing whatever. something that they're other doing people something are. different. There's there's an order of the buy-in or this, the phase of the tournament. They move their screens and they know you know Dude, it's there's like, all the little things. Yeah, yeah it's you got to find ways to to separate your your yourself. Um, but yeah, man. Uh, so tell me. Tell me a bit before, because I want to take a lot of the questions. Tell me a bit about what your your uh, prediction hypothesis is about the U.S. on on gaming and coming back. Are you do you believe that the U.S. will have poker and uh, in a bit, or do you think do you think that this is like another five ten years or won't happen, or do you think in a year or two that we'll see New York, these other states fall suit and things are going to kind of just come back together? I mean. Just to go off on a tangent. I keep sorry. I, 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 I mean, a, few, a few at once, but do you do you also feel like do you think that this potentially like let's just say you're you're right or it's like more on that side of twelve eighteen months? I mean, casinos can't be out of business for twelve eighteen months. You know, like win and the encore and and these different companies and stuff and states like there there's like businesses that maybe have to adjust or shift 
to like the market and, and maybe online poker, you know, could be one of those that sort of uh, the cross, you know, the interstate kind of um, sharing or pooling or other laws that are close. They push it forward and they say, look, yeah. we need it. like, I mean, you know, this could be the leverage point for passing something and whether it should be passed or not is less relevant to the fact of what will happen. And that's what I've tried to focus my content on is separating what I think is the right thing or what should happen for what will actually happen. Cause people don't behave rationally. You've seen that in the markets, the VIX is at 60. I mean, people aren't behaving rationally. So um, the, the point is that this, this could be a leverage point for casinos to, pass online poker and for politicians to accept that as a, mo- a form of revenue uh, is it likely probably not it's probably not the highest point of their uh, priorities priority but that's definitely a way that this does play out and it is leverage for the casinos needless to say in a moment where people can't leave the house bringing the experience online is just an obvious sort of like one-two punch that i'm sure they're exploring they have a lot more incentive to do now um and that it'll be interesting to see how that plays out i don't i i do see so I'm not sure about a timeline. And, and one of the things that's that's tough about, you know, investing or whatever it is, is you can have the narrative right and the timeline wrong and you might still be wrong. So I'm not sure about the timeline of all this, but I do see an eventual legalization of online poker just because like, it's just kind of like the marijuana argument. Like, is it is it right or wrong? That doesn't matter. Is it going to eventually be legal in all 50 states? Yes. When is that going to happen? I don't really know. But I just know that that will happen. The thing is, though, that um, just because the reason that this will happen, by the way, is just because the collective psychology is eventually going to move that direction, just like it was inevitable that we were going to ban slavery. We were going to give rights to African-Americans. We were going to give rights to women. We were going to give rights to gay marriage. Those things are all inevitable going to happen. This is also inevitable going to happen because this is the direction. This is the trend. You don't swim upstream on the current. Right. So I don't bet against the inevitable happening. Uh, when will it happen? I don't know. And what is the the real question is like, what is the viability of this as a, as a revenue stream for people wanting to play poker if it's siloed state by state? And the answer is, unfortunately, it's not going to be that great. If right, your, your player pool is limited to state by state, what are you going to have professionals moving to Kansas because there's a fish? I mean, it's just like you need you need a large player pool. You like, need everyone to play together. So you need interoperability between the states. And I don't know about that. That's kind of like the last thing I see happening, unfortunately. And also you need all of the states on board for it to happen. So the the, the best thing to happen would be if they just nationalized it, legalized it everywhere and had everyone playing. But I just unfortunately see it as more being a state by state. Even now it's like all these things, you know, and it's, we're not in, um, I don't know the exact policy and I have some friends and lobbyists and whatnot, but it's, it's not, it's kind of tricky too. A lot of stuff gets done. There's meetings, people come together, they talk, they vote, there's set times and things. And now it's just kind of like everyone's, you know, what are they going to do? Like, all right, let's get online. Let's get on zoom and talk about it. I mean, I guess that's like, if eventually there's the lawmakers and the different things are going to have to adjust. Yeah. Right. I mean, things are sort of the, what happens in, in the UK, uh, Boris is in, in, in ICU. I mean, you can't, that's real, right? These are talking about the sixth largest economy in the world and the president's in ICU. I mean, like you can't, right. I mean, it, it makes sense for the lawmakers to be look. They're also all I mean, let's be realistic. They're also all the most at risk group. Right. These are just the facts. Right. They're right. old. They're older people. <laughs> so like, right. And who knows what pre-existing health conditions they have because they don't make that public. Right. So I, I don't know. But I know that they're the highest risk group. It does make sense to defend against these sorts of things. Right. And then when you see that this is happening in other parts of the world, I mean, America, America, uh, I love the U.S., but they have this 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 uh, belief that like 
things can't happen here because we're America, right? But right. Like, <laughs> which is, I think, is part of the reason why people have been a little cavalier about um, the whole thing because it's like, oh, that's happening in Italy, that's happening in China, that's happening in Korea. But <laughs> you know, like yeah, like oh, we have we have better healthcare, we have better this, it's going to be fine. But no, like yeah, there's still there's look numbers. Look at New York; and, they're building yeah. a hospital in Central Park. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it is, it's wild times. I'm not sure about the poker thing. What do you think? You, you probably, you're almost certainly know more about this than me. I mean, I see, I think the Pennsylvania, Michigan, those type of things are big deals, right? That's uh shows really, those are, those are important States. Those are, those have bigger populations and, and, you know, money more yeah. of the powerful States. So I think, you know, you, yeah, obviously we hear California is the key state. That's the one where it's like, would be the third largest country if it was legalized in terms of players and what it would do, like what the state alone would be as big as, you know, some of the major contributing countries. So yeah, California, New York, Florida, those States get activated, you know, throw Texas in, which I think is an unlikely one, but like Fl- Florida, um, California, New York. Now, I think New York's not that. New York's most likely, if that happens, that's like, that's major news too. You know, it's like one of those, the state that like everyone in the country is going to look and be like, oh, why are we not doing this or whatever? Because like now Pennsylvania, yeah. they get the tri-state, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, Connecticut, New, New York. Uh, I think then you got, you got a business. Like if New York comes on board, then things are going to, I think, go pretty quickly. And you I also, don't think that's that crazy. You also have, there, there's two things here. And, and, um, the first is that, like, why couldn't there be interoperability with the states and then them basically prorating the rake taxes based on the VPN? Like that, that this is possible. This isn't like crazy talk, right? Yeah. Like you can have okay, we have sixty percent of the players, sixty um, percent of the hands played on this global or this national poker site are coming from California. Therefore, we're going to distribute sixty percent of the revenue to them. I mean, that just seems possible. Right. But the other the other problem here I see is that. Um, you know, like a lot of things, these, these, these conversations become politicized. And so you have the right thinking one thing and the left thinking another. And again, independent of who's right and wrong, you have states that lean towards one political party. And so clearly online poker is going to be harder to pass in more conservative states, right? Because it's gambling, it's against, you know, there's the religion aspect of the whole thing. And so you're going to have states that are resistant to this independent of the fact that there's tax revenue and the politicians are resistant because the people are resistant, just like they are to perhaps things like gay marriage and marijuana and uh, and other things. Right. So um, it's going to take longer for those, those states to come on board, even if there is revenue opportunity, or even if one, yeah, I mean, it's logical, right? There's there's the politics here, and then, then even, that's even that's if you could pour in, like you're saying too, if, if if New Jersey, for example, with Party Poker's in, Stars, the other eight eight eight, like the sites are there, WSOP, and and they're booming the revenues and whatnot, which is going to be skewed, of course, because of this COVID nineteen. This is you know the numbers online are up everywhere, crazy numbers and, and everything that's booming. But yeah. those, if those states could pour into the overall pool, like yeah, why can't you just put? The New Jersey, if you even got the states that are allowed in the U.S. to go into the shared like regular pools, like that would be a big deal because then people would move there. Like if you could pick five, six, seven states and now those feed into the overall like pool, the sites, then now you're going to actually have a huge boom because people Especially are like, you know what? I'm not going to move like California. Yeah, I'm not going to move to uh, Canada or Mexico full time. But you know what? If I live in New Jersey or New York, I could go over to New Jersey or if I'm in Connecticut, I'll go to New Jersey or if I'm in, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll get there. Yeah. Like I'll, it's, it's worth it for me or to try it. And, and I think that would make like a massive. Also, difference. also there's this like self-fulfilling situation, right? When, when you have 
an economy of, 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 or an ecosystem, whatever you want to call it, of, of, of a thousand, right? And you, you, you don't have the opportunity to play certain games because you don't have, you can't five table, right? You can't six table. Uh, you don't have games at all hours and you don't have the, the, the flow of traffic. So then you play less poker because you can't play on your own schedule becomes less. I mean, p- humans are creatures of habit, right? If you have access to something all the time, you'll do it more often. You'll make it a part of your life. Yeah. And that's a function of the, 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 the amount of people that are in that environment. So when you, when you, when you nationalize something, you bring these player pools together, what does that do? It creates more traffic. So you have one of the reasons why I'm sure you and I can both relate. We, we played so much party poker. It's because I could log in anytime, any day of the week and find a game. And yeah. so when you have these player pools that build together, you can then, and have that reality and then people make poker a bigger part of their life they pay for training sites they play more poker yeah. because of that well you, you uh, actually have liquidity you want to play a 20 dollars sit and go i want to play 25 cent 50 cash game a guy wants to play a multi-table tournament it doesn't work you got to have you got to have enough people wanting to be aligned and, and do the same thing yeah, so when you silo things in a small state i mean it's harder to have regular games that are v- v- varied enough and big enough for to attract a lot of people and for them to leave money on the site and you know make poker a real thing so i hope that happens do i think it's going to happen i think we have a we have a ways to go unfortunately absolutely well yeah we're looking here again you have uh different sites you got the instagram you have the twitter you got a website you've got a lot lot going on what (laughs) i want to check quickly your your wife who has a very successful a little um a little little bites of beauty she's got a very very cool page and you know we've met uh had dinner before that with my wife and, and your wife and tell me a little about her and how you met and and how does she support you in poker and, and just you guys are both doing you know social media sort of uh building brands and, and activity so how does that work is that something you guys uh collaborate on help each other with or is it like man you guys are both so busy like how do you find time well there's a lot of questions there um <laughs> So, I like to give 10 at once. That's my style. Yeah, <laughs> really 10, 10 things to pull from. Yes. Um, so don't blow it. You got a lot. Easy. You can choose any of it. Well, we met. Uh, so I guess we can start with how we met. And then that'll give you a background of, of, of a little bit of who she is. Uh, so I was I moved to Italy when I was 24. And uh, I wanted to learn Italian and like, discover my roots. My last name, Todelli, obviously. So um I was looking for a place to learn in this city I was staying in, which is, which is a, a small town. I read about it in a book, uh, actually a book that I read at Aruba during the tournament that I won. I read this book and there was a cool town in Italy. I'm like, someday I'm going to go there and learn Italian. So this someday came, you know, five years later, I was 24. Uh, and I walk into the office of the university looking for a classroom, a place, like a, some resource to learn. And I walk into the office of, Amra and she's wants to, uh, she's moving to the U S to teach. Uh, and we agreed to do a language exchange and that's how we met. And we got married after that. They, like, the rest is sort of a history. Um, so she how was long, a teacher. How long, how long did you get married? How long we met? Two years. Two years. Okay. So we met in, in, in January of 2000. Sorry. Let me think about the year 2011, January, 2011. Uh, we got married in February, 2013. So we agreed to do a language exchange and we obviously really hit it off. Um, so she was moving to Florida. She was a teacher at the university um, and she was moving to Florida to teach. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's how we met. And so she's super supportive and she's uh, amazing. I would not be anywhere near where I am <laughs> without her in my career. She, um, She's been traveling with me the, the whole time and uh, helping me with 
everything, like from filming my YouTube videos to strategizing about uh, whether or not we should play a game or whether I was ready or not. I don't like all these, all these things that go very unnoticed, but that are very integral to one's overall success. And, um, you know, if you look, if you graphed out my sort of like, success in my poker career there'd be like you know you know bitcoins correlated to the stock market you you would see you would see these two graphs like when my wife came into my life and and like this whole thing so positive positive, uh positive force for sure there's a very big correlation coefficient there um that's awesome that's great yeah she's a university professor she she putting um um, but she's you know written about travel literature and has a whole career that's not related to um, you know exactly like her, her brand that you see online, which is more of a lifestyle and food brand. Um, so it's very interesting. She has a very interesting background, and she does a lot of writing about um, travel literature and, and and things like that too. And she shares a lot of her content on Little Bites of Beauty. But you'll see a lot of food about there. But um, a lot of people don't know that about her background. Um, Nice. So, so you guys yeah, so pretty, 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 a lot of, pretty raising a lot of awareness too. That's a crazy story. You know, I met my wife at Burning Man, pretty, pretty random yeah. and wild. And you're, this is, that's pretty wild. You went to a, a book that you had, uh, you read it from Aruba from that tournament or, you know, that time you, you saw the city, a random city in Italy, a small town, you went there and then walk into a room and meet your wife. That's pretty. Yeah, pretty it is wild. crazy. The book is called playing for pizza by John Grisham. And it's a book about this American football player that goes to, play football in Italy. And I was like, really cool. I was like kind of related to the protagonist. Cause he was like, you know, this athlete guy going to like take a break from his busy life in America. And I was getting fed up with things in Vegas. And I went to this you know small town and then, yeah, it's just crazy. We have a really crazy story. Um, but yeah, she's great. She was raising a lot of awareness about what's going on in Italy. She posts amazing content on Instagram, daily stories about what's going on and how to be prepared. And no, it's really great. So if you want to uh, follow along, she's, she's, she's great for that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's very cool, man. Well, yeah, let's, let's die. We do have, so we've already been an hour and 20 minutes. We've got a lot of, a lot of, uh, Twitter action going here. So there's a lot of questions. I don't even know. This is up there with some of the most, let's just see here. We got again, a $55 ticket. If you're watching live and you hear this, you could get over and ask a question and then you will be eligible to win this at the end. But guys, again, I'll try and get to your questions. Um, maybe make like short videos on my YouTubes for some of the best ones or, or, or reply there. Thank you so much for all your questions. I did read and see all those. You guys are awesome. Yeah. That's, there is a lot of, a lot of support and engagement. And I see a bunch of your, your loyal uh, fans and, and people engaging your community coming in. So we'll, we'll hit some of those real quick before we do go to the questions, talk about a little bit about your coaching or what you do or people that you have a network or a subscription or what, what oh, is yeah. your, what's your, uh, your coaching um, scenario you do with people? Yeah. So thanks for that. I mean, I, I started putting out a lot of content and, um, you know, people were asking if I did coaching and I just kind of like, it just evolved that way where I really liked sharing poker strategy content. And then I started working with people and I, I loved it. Like it's really fun and it actually made me a lot better of a player to work with other people as well. And so I work with a lot of, uh, aspiring players that are either looking to go full time in poker or turn poker into a profitable side hustle. Um, and usually it's right in that sweet spot where they're transitioning from, you know, let's say playing, you know, whatever, two, five to five, 10, or they're like, I want to make, you know, 3k a month playing poker, um, help me build a business plan to do that. And then, you know, let's work together to develop the skills that I need to increase my hourly win rate to reach a certain metric to where I can <clears throat> play this many hours, <clears throat> excuse me, and reach that financial goal. Right. And maybe it's built around a lifestyle component as well. So I work with a lot of clients to do that. Um, and that's really fun. I love doing that. And now I've been 
this is a great, like, it's tragic what's happening, but it's also a time that uh, virtual coaching is something I've always done. And so it's, it's a great time to do it because I'm at home, they're at home. And so they have, they have more time to work on their game and study and play online or, or work through the lab and stuff. So I've been dedicating more time to that during this time as well. And then at conscious poker, we have like a, you know, we have poker products that are, that are available to help people improve at poker. We have free content. You can download my hand reading system, which teaches you how to hand read. Um, it's my process that I use in all the hands I play to think about what my opponents are holding. It's a free PDF. Um, and then we have a membership as well, where people can join like a community of other aspiring players and get, you know, support on a weekly uh, basis through new content. There's a group coaching call uh, that's led by me. And then a Facebook group where I'm responding to all the comments and then picking the best hands and putting them in videos inside of our membership. So that keeps me really busy. Uh, and that's a lot of fun as well. And it's a great way to like, you know, share the best content I've learned and interact with the community and it that's helps awesome. support the content I'm doing in YouTube and, uh, and, and the other stuff. So it's, it's great. Very cool. Well, let's uh, yeah. Yeah, let's dive over. You guys, if you guys want to know more, you can get a hold of what's the best way for them on the website to reach out or via the Twitter or website. What, what so it depends what you're looking for. If you want to just like say, Hey, and that you saw me here and whatever, like Instagram, Twitter, say, Hey, if you want like more formal content that you're seeing, like what, what is this guy talking about? What content does he produce? Consciouspoker.com uh, is probably the best place or the YouTube at conscious poker. Um, so it just depends, but I'm very active on social media. I read, respond to all my own comments, also, uh, emails and stuff. So yeah, reach out, say, Hey, okay. Um, great. That's that, that's, you guys heard it. You know where to go. Uh, let's start. And it's actually, it's like Italian, um, week or, or month for me. I've had, I have Mustafa Knit on, we've got, um, Dario Sammartino tomorrow. Yeah. So, you know, we're hitting, we're just going through the Italian, Italian legends of the game. This week. Yeah, We'll keep it going. Uh, what is how many failed deposits did you have before you had success? Do you remember? Like, was it your first one? Never look back, or a few? No, there were a few, and and so like it's hard to say because I, you know, like for example, that first tournament I won, I put thirty dollars on and I turned it into twenty two hundred. That was maybe my second deposit, but then I busted that and had a deposit again. So like I had success intermittently with these deposits, but you know I would run up a bankroll and then lose it. I didn't have good bankroll management, even though I was could win at poker. And so that's what ultimately caused that problem. Yeah. It, I think it's also important to realize that poker is bankroll management. Why it is so important, but a lot of players like yourself or myself or people that come from, from, from that beginning of time, it's not like we, we kind of only knew poker. So it's not like we were businessmen that started throwing money into poker and doing yeah. we basically built from like 50, a hundred, 200, 500, you know, not a lot of investment to sort of move up, the ranks or move up the stakes and whatnot. Right. So it's like kind of interesting when you look at guys and people playing, you got to remember like a lot of poker players that have had success or built up, they generally, it's not like they were risking a six figures in money. They, they may be started with a couple hundred 18 years old. If you go broke, like I remember thinking about what was I going to do if I drop out of college and I was like, okay, I'm 18. I have 20 grand saved or whatever it is. If I drop, if I drop out of college and lose all this money, I'm going to be 19 with no money. I'm going to be the same as everybody else. Everybody else is 19 with no money. I mean, I'll be one year behind them in terms of where I'm at in my university. Right. But like, it didn't matter at the time. And, and right. also, like, you see these things happen now, where like you see these guys do this bankroll challenge and whatever, like turn 100 into 10,000 or whatever. Like nobody. And I mean, like, nobody did that in 2003. Nobody was doing a bankroll challenge. Nobody knew what bankroll management was, really. Right. Like, people were just kind of, like, punting around. Um, right. Now, if I was going to start over, see how it's because these people have learned. 
know, so we were not, uh, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I'm I'm pretty confident, you know, even speaking to a a lot of the people that were very good at poker and at the elite level at the time and uh, were not very (laughs) managing their bankroll the right way. For sure. No, I think we've all, yeah, bankroll management is definitely a very, uh, unfortunately, you really have to learn the hard way with that one. I really believe that almost everyone learns the hard way. Yep. Um, so, okay. So that was Mark's question. Uh, what is the most memorable Mark uh, Lapina yet? What's the most memorable hand you ever played? Do you have one that stands out where you're just like in a tournament or I don't know, for a cash game, that was just like unbelievably memorable. It's like a great moment or you got there a huge pot. Yeah, I guess a look. Yeah. All of those things. Uh, so I was playing in the big game in Macau and the big game is it a, it's, it's a, it's a private game at a casino called star world. So it's like an invite only game where these, these very wealthy Chinese businessmen host this game. And, and I was able to play a couple times or yeah, I was able to play often. This, in this was game. like robo trick it rast Phil lock during this era of like guys going over there sort of early with the Americans and, and, and yeah. The yeah, those are amongst the, the short list that was played often in these games. And so, um, everyone kind of had a turn um, in terms of like the VIPs like to play with different people. They got tired of, you know, losing the same people. And then they kind of like, you know, if they liked you, you would be invited. And then when you were invited, you would like be invited during this period. So I, this was at the, 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 the heat of my period of, of going to this game for uh, a while. And so um, playing a very high stakes game and um, I'm down three buy-ins. Okay. And three buy-ins in, in the game is, is a lot. And I, I usually have a three buy-in stop loss, but this game is like, phenomenal and I'm playing very well and you know different days things affect you differently right like some days you have a cup of coffee you feel it some days you don't some days you have a glass of wine you feel it some days you don't this day I didn't feel the three buy-in law I mean I felt it financially but I I was like I was in the friggin zone and I knew that like I had a massive amount of EV so I'm like you know what I'm gonna do something I don't do and I'm gonna come back for the fourth buy-in so I come back to the fourth buy-in buy-in's four million Hong Kong which is divided by 7.76 so it's maybe like I don't know, 500k us something like that maybe doing my math wrong anyway so a lot, i'm trying to do my math and tell a story at the same time which is not a good combination yeah, anyway maybe. so it's a large amount a large amount so i get down to like 3.4 million 3.6 million basically like lose one hand or something so right at the beginning of my fourth buy the vip opens okay the blinds are 10k 20k 40k or 20k 40k and there's an 80k straddle vip opens to like 250 260k and two people call and the, the people that call like clearly have nothing like just calling to play a pot with the VIP. They have like very deep stacks. Um, and so I'm just like, you know, the pot's 800 K or so. And like, I have 3.4 million. I don't want to make it like 900 K and, and then everyone's going to call because they're 10 million deep. And I know that's right. how it plays. I don't want to like, I have two tens. I don't want to just, you know, play a four way pot with tens. And then like, I'm not know where I'm at. So I just jam. Okay. So I ship it in. And I'm like, you know, if everybody folds, I'm like, whatever. I win a huge pot, no showdown. And if I get called by like, you know, the VIP, like maybe it's not bad. So the VIP literally, literally takes his stack. And if you've seen the stacks in Macau, they're these plaques, right? They're, they're circular, yeah. they're square plaques. Like yeah. this. He picks up the stack of plaques and he stands up and he dumps it in the middle of the pot. All news said, he can't wait. You might, you yeah. see, it might be bad news. Like even for him to be excited, it could be, you know, it doesn't have to be aces, but it's, it, you know, it's not good to see that. It's it, your your equity with tens is very low, right? Like yeah. you're you're always beat. So he he stands, and this guy is like a stoic guy. Smokes you know a pack an hour. Does not ever move. So he's right. I'm, and I'm like, holy shit! How do I get cooler? He has like a forty percent 
opening frequency. The other two people fold and he turns over Jack seven of clubs. Wow. And I'm like, what the fuck? I, I'm like, I just thought that like, he felt bad for me. I like literally I was talking to my wife. She was sitting behind me at the time. I was literally talking. I was like, I, after the hand, I was like, do you think he just like felt bad and just like wanted to like double me up? And just like, I, I really think that's what, like, to this day, I really think that's what happened. So so like, scary hand. It's never easy. That's not a, I mean, it's, a, it's what I'm I, only two to one. I'm only yeah. two to one favorite. Right. right. But I'm like, I can't lose this money. Like if I lose this money, I'm going back to the win and I have to like kind of grind it back. Right. I can't just hop back in the big game. So I'm like, I'm going to have to like, I really need to win this pot. So he flops, this fucking guy flops a Jack. Oh, wow. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, how is this? I'm like, I don't, I'm not, I never complain about my luck, but I'm like, this is ridiculous. The guy is trying to give me money and he like flops a Jack. Like, this is so ridiculous. You You legitimately must've been like, you were having a nightmare, right? Yeah. Like I normally am very stoic, especially in this game where it's invite only. I'm not going to like complain about my luck in front of these guys, but I like, I I made a facial reaction that was like, I was clearly not like, I was not that happy about this. So the turn comes a spade and there's three spades on the board and I have the 10 of spades. So these guys play back rat and they love to sweat the cards. So they peel the sides of the cards to see if there's, uh, you know, what's called legs, meaning it could be like a six, seven or an eight or a nine. And that tells them a certain thing about the card. And in back rat, that's very important. So they put the last card down and they always do this sweating thing, right? Because they just, they just love to do this stuff. So I'm like, no, 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 no. And I never, I never interject in the game or whatever. I'm always like quiet and let them do whatever they want. But I'm like, whatever. I'm stuck 12 million in the game. I'm about to lose my last fucking, you know, buy-in in this game. I never <laughs> play this game for a while. I'm like, let's, let me, let me have some fun. So I have I'm like Ambra, my wife sitting by me. I'm like, Ambra, you need to sweat this card, right? You need to, you need to peel the card and the VIPs are going to show you how to do it. And you need to be a spade. And so now she's like, you know, turns all red. She's like, what are you injecting me into this game? And I'm like turning over this card for $10 million here. So yeah. she like peels the card and it's a spade. And like the whole table's going crazy. The VIP's laughing his ass off. Like he's like cheering for me at this point because it's like the scene is so ridiculous. Yeah. And so I go on a tear after this and like I win back. Yeah, I might have ended up the day down actually, but I won back like another buy-in or two. I might have ended the day up. I don't remember, but I ended up going on this upswing at this right. point over the next period that I was involved in the game. And I, it, it went very, very well for me. And it's like literally comes down to like, if I miss that card, like I wonder what would have happened, you know? Yeah. It's so crazy. Those type of things and, and big events, There's so many things like that. Like, like so many, yeah. And, 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 and moments or satellites or gets you in the spot that you get to go or exactly cash game. You take a shot and you run well or not. And I mean, a lot of life is very, it's, it's funny too, in tournaments in particular, where on a Sunday, for example, you're playing between let's say five K's and 500 or $200 buy-ins. And it's like the game's pretty much the same. Sure. The opponent's, might be tougher at the higher level but like yeah you still got to win your ace king to queens you got a king's got a whole base king these type of hands happen a lot right so it's like where are you running the best at um or the variance in, in spots so yeah that's yeah, uh, like i've played three let, i don't know let's call it three million hands of poker in my life but how many of those hands did i play in the big game like i don't know three thousand i mean to five thousand ten thousand i mean it's, it's like so small of a sample in comparison right. to how many hands I've played in my life. And it's like, you're not going to reach the long run in that big game. Like I'm not going to get it all in with tens to Jack seven 30 times and realize my equity. You know, you're not going to flop your sets against aces and even distribution, but like a lot of your, <laughs> you know, you're taking a shot and like a lot of your, you know, your, your, your career sort of, sort of where you are might be resulting on, how you ran at those five final tables, you know, or whatever yeah, it is. And so sure. I mean, that's, that's the game we play, you know, we're professional gamblers. And so got to yeah. run well where it counts. 
for sure. Who do you think is the best uh, li- live MT? Or I'm sorry, best MTT live player today? Who you, you do a lot of videos, hand reviews. Just from what you see, is there any players that like you're super impressed with at the moment? I mean, a, a few names. There's obviously a bunch of guys playing at a high level that are on the highest high roller circuit. But is there anyone the over the years or recently been super impressed with? Man, I mean, I'm impressed with all of those guys, and I feel like it's one of those things. It's like on any given Sunday, like who's showing up and playing a little bit better that day, you know, and also you don't see, um, you know, you, you poker has to give you a scenario where you can shine and it doesn't come up that often where you can really do something that's like very, very distinct in what you would do versus what someone else would do. Like, are you, you know, you raise people up with your strong hand. I'm not trivializing poker, but I'm saying like, I don't watch enough of these streams or whatever and don't see enough situations. So I respect all of their games. They're all extremely good. I'm probably not, versed enough in like everything to give the best opinion. I know that's not the answer everyone wants to hear. I'm sorry. That's all right. I know it's true. I mean, it's, it is hard to pick, pick a couple. Um, I also feel like there's so many results oriented scenarios and I'm not taking away anything from the people that ran extremely well. I don't even want to call out names because it's just going to sound like I'm downplaying their results when I actually think the people that ran well probably deserve it to a large extent. But I'm saying like there's other, for every one person that ran extremely well and that's, you know, everybody's talking about in that moment there's 10 people that are probably near as good maybe even sometimes better maybe not quite as good but they didn't run as well that nobody's talking about right i think that poker is like unfair and to a large extent in that in that regard for sure poker i mean i mean it's just like uh, some yeah it's true I, you're right how, how do you how do you actually study poker yourself do you do solvers po work any type of stuff or how is your like how do you review and work on your game Good question. And, um, you know, it's funny. I actually probably, even though I've played like less poker in this period, I probably actually review more poker now because I'm creating content. So one of the things I do, um, there's, there's a few things I do. One of the things I do for clients is I review hands with them during our coaching calls, but they'll send me all of the hands they play during a session. And if it's a live session, they'll send me 20 hands, you know, in a notepad. And if it's a online session, they'll clip together, you know, five or 10 interesting hands they played and I'll make them a strategy video. So like when I make them a strategy video, I like literally have to like break down every single spot, every single hand. And so a lot of times I'll have to go into the lab. I'll have to like, you know, I'll give them my raw thoughts in real time because they like that where I just record myself thinking about my thoughts in real time. And sometimes I end up not knowing their results and being wrong or, but at least they see my thoughts, but then I'll afterwards, I'll break down the hand in the lab with them. And also I'll use, I'll pull up poker cruncher or an equity calculator. doesn't matter which one really. Uh, yeah. And I'll run through the combos, the equities versus the ranges. And I'll, I'll go through the whole thing and I'll think about, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. I don't want to necessarily get into the weeds, but basically looking at different ways they could play the hand based on the odds of the, of the equities versus the ranges and the math. Yeah. And looking at like, you know, if this card comes on the turn, what would your equity be versus his range? And how would that dictate your strategy? Um, would you bet on these types of cards, which cards gives you a range advantage and versus a nut advantage? And how do you counteract those two things? And how do you take exploitative play into account? So I, I do a lot of those things on my own because I have to for my clients, which helps me study. So I actually study more poker now because I have to. When, when Sometimes when you're on your own, you have to force yourself to do it. You know, so I'm actually grateful for the membership and, then, and that sort of thing to keep me keep me sharper than ever. But um, yeah, the, uh, I also have, you know, really lucky to have uh, a social circle in poker that I've been able to talk with over the years. And I think, honestly, one of the biggest blessings of Macau was that, you know, we were all living in Macau. And so, like, we're all kind of like 
traveling outside your comfort zone to live there. And like, what do you have to do besides hang out with poker players? And what do you talk about besides what you're spending 20 hours a day doing? So you talk about poker and I got to talk poker with people that I thought were the best in the world. And, and then I, what, I, I, think I learned from them. What year were you there for like, what was a period of stretches you were there? Were you there for years or did you like go and yeah. come back and whatnot? Well, I, both, I guess is the, 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 the best answer. I was, I was, so we have visa limitations. So you can only stay for 30 days at a time. So I, I would only stay for 30 days at a time, but I had an apartment there for three years and I would intermittently travel to and from Macau for a period of a month or sometimes two months when I would leave for a day and go to Hong Kong or Bali or Singapore, wherever, and then come back. Uh, and I averaged about four to four to five months a year in Macau over those each year for those three years. Was there, um, um, who, who would you say out of that group, who was the catalyst to get the people over there? Who was like the first one who discovered Macau cash games? Cause I, I hear different, you know, a few guys going, but who was like the first who went over there, saw it and then like told a couple of friends, Hey, you got to get over here. I got, so I was one of the first people that, that was told because I went over there like right when poker came around. Um, I would say, you know, Tom, Tom was there. He wasn't really telling anyone. And, um, you know, Brian Rast was, was one of the first ones there. That's a name that everyone knows. I don't want to mention some of the other names because I'm not sure they would. I mean, Andrew Robel was there. Um, yeah. So, I mean, um, but I remember, I remember when, when, uh, there was like this, there was like this, uh, it's <laughs> like cover up where like, like, because nobody knew in, in the West what was what was going on in Macau. So there was this cover-up where it was like, um, you know, Rass went over there, he beat all the VIPs, and now they say no more white pros are allowed and, like, you know, white players can't go play in the casino anymore. But it's like, it was a public casino at the win. <laughs> so, like, you right. can still go play. And, like, maybe that was true about the big game, but that became kind of, like, the narrative about poker. And it was, like, obvious because when you, you know, discover the gold mine, you don't go tell other people you found it. So we were very secretive about Macau, for a very, you know, for a while, because we didn't want to tell anyone that, you know, we'd all been to the rodeo before we'd all been to party poker and saw the evolution of poker over a period of time and how it goes from being, you know, unbelievable to more difficult as people come. And we realized, you know, on day one, I think we all realized that all the pros in the world are, are eventually going to come here because the opportunity is so great. And eventually the games are going to be more difficult. And that's exactly what happened. If you graphed out Macau over three years, it would basically be like online poker from 2003 to today, uh, and you saw that happen in, th- in about four years, three to four years um, while I was there. And so, you know, in the beginning stages, it, it was insane, but nobody wanted to tell anyone and nobody was talking about it. I didn't, I wasn't making content at the time. Uh, I was very discreet about the content I was making. Uh, I wasn't making it, but I, but the things I would say about Macau too, just cause you know, we didn't want anyone to know. Right. Makes, makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it's just too much opportunity for sure. And uh, what's your favorite hand beside aces? What's your snapper hand? What's the one you just love to see in play? Jack and the diamonds. Make a, make a Royal with it just cause it's got so much potential. What's your, what, just, what? I don't know. It's just always been that sexy hand. I remember one time in my home game when I was in high school, um, I was like, this is my hand and you don't mess around when I got my hand. Right. And so like, I like re-raised someone and then someone called and someone else re-raised and then I called and the guy back shoved. And eventually I was like, you know, I knew that I was behind. And right. I knew that like I didn't wasn't getting the right odds, but I was like, I have Jack Ten of Diamonds and I said I would never fold it. And I kind of like, you know, felt a little pride about it. And so I was like, I'm going to make a point. I called it off and I broke aces with it. And no. so that like reinforced. I mean, yeah, I that kind of, yeah, that one, I think that, got, like, you got that one in your, 
in your arsenal. What are you speaking of Jack 10 suited and, and uh, sh- what do you think about short deck? Do you have any no, Jack 10 and diamonds, not Jack 10 suited. Okay. okay. Not Jack 10 suited. are created equal. Okay. Jack like different there. equities with different Jack 10s. Okay. All right. I get it. I, everyone's got a favorite suit. That's, that's good. Um, what, what do you think about the new short deck explosion in the high roller Triton series? Are you doing any work on that? Are you familiar with the game? Do you know how to play? What's your short deck? Uh, you know experience yeah not not a lot i know it's it's boomed and it's huge and it it blew up um and um i never got on the train really like i knew it was big i saw it coming um but uh yeah i just you know it's like it's it's one of those things where you have to decide let's say you know you can speak a couple languages and you have to decide like you know do i want to learn another language and in, in, in a game like poker um when you know I'm like very proficient at, at, at a game. I'm not going to want to learn another game and be mediocre. So for me, it's binary. I'm either going to want to learn to the point where I can compete at the level that I'm competing at no limit, or I'm just not going to learn. And so for me, I decided like, you know what? I've done a lot of what I wanted to do in poker, like me expanding more effort to be better as a poker player to learn more games is going to take away from my ability to, to do other things that are meaningful and important to me in life. And so like, I just have to keep poker as that slice of the pie that it already is. And I just don't feel like I have more room to, to, to get great at another game. That's going to take, you know, a long, long time and, and require so much of me. Um, right. Makes a lot of sense. Do you, did you ever have a point where you wanted to give up or ever a really bad downswing where just like you were losing in cash games, things just got thrown out of hand and you, you know, not like early on, but like once you had established a role and like, you know, cruising, things are all smooth and peachy. Oh yeah. Um, actually, so this might be like, not, I would say like in the beginning, I think everybody has that to some extent where you, right. you run up a thousand dollars and lose it. And you're like, ah, I'm never playing poker again, but you know, yeah. you're really playing poker again. But I actually, right. I, of course I had those things happen to me too, but I actually had like a real situation. So we talked about the F tops. We talked about the million dollar year in 2007. It was, you know, very on the map in poker at that time. Um, but in 2000, let's say like 2008, I, I did very well in tournament 2009. Like one of these years I have to think about more about when, cause they all kind of blend together when you're, when you're playing poker and don't keep track of days. But I went on a huge downswing and like lost back, you know, a lot of what I had made. So I went on a, basically a million dollar downswing. Right. Um, but this was like deeper into my career. This was like talking about like six, seven years at six, five, six years after I started playing and I had already reached the top of poker. It's already right. like one of the biggest winners in the world. And and then I go back down and I'm now I'm playing, uh, you know, go back down to playing two, four and five, 10. Look, I was playing 300, 600, no limit. I was playing 300, 600. Looking at that, do you believe there was a bit of uh, um, too much confidence? Do you believe you married oh my too, God. Many, too many tables? You were just kind of like, just, just not. No, really no, no, no. Just, oh, hold on, hold on. We have to be clear here. Like I had too big of an ego. I thought it was better than I was. And I played against people that were better than me. And I stopped studying and improving. There was like no excuse. Like I'm not blaming luck. Like I'm sure I ran worse during my downswing than I ran during my upswing. But like, this was my fault. I got overconfident. (laughs) My ego got in the way and I made very bad decisions. So this totally my fault deserved it, had it coming. Um, You know, you make a lot of money in nine age, a very young age and reach, you know, the top of this industry that you've looked up to for a couple of years and it goes to your head. It shouldn't have, but it did. And I had to learn the hard way. And, um, since then I fortunately learned a lot about that and in Macau, I kept my feet more on the ground. Uh, it came out, came out strong on the other side, but I, I really did go through this period where I was like, it was really, really, really hard for me to even play well and grind. You know, I, I was, I had a situation where like my preflop raise w- was a buy-in 
so, so I mean, like it was very hard to take the the thousand dollar or four hundred dollar buy in seriously when it was a big blind in my other game or a pre flop raise in my, in right. my former yeah, game. Yeah, it's tricky to jump stakes and move around and play. So I did not do well, and I really thought about like I really needed to take like a long period off before I got refocused. It was really tough. Absolutely. Well, that's that's good. And what, talk a little bit about your you have the YouTube channel Conscious Poker, over fifty thousand subscribers, very successful and and built up. So you, you obviously you, you you focus on the mental side a lot of the. Do, do you meditate? Do you have like a pregame ritual? Do you do you, how much do you, do you really focus on the the mental side of the game and, and being um, you know that type of preparation and be working out before you play like that type of stuff? Yeah, I mean everybody has a different like approach and like way that they anchor themselves to find you know their edge and strength or whatever and for me it's been largely a lot about that the lifestyle side of things where like eating well and exercising and kind of like preparing mentally and and that's evolved a lot over the years and what it's mean and yes you know today i've been meditating for four years so i guess that's more like rather recent in the the grand scheme of things but i've worked with like mental coaches in the past and and that's always been a very big part of my game and I, i feel like one of the things that have, that's given me an edge and I've really tried to pursue all these different avenues because the opportunity was always there and you're playing at a high level, the, the, the edges are small and there's other people that are, you know, maybe more technically sound than me because they, 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 they thrive in that more analytical uh, mathematical environment. So I had to find my edges in, in the ways that I felt like were my natural strengths and the mental side is definitely, I think been when one of them I focused a lot on. Yeah, that's, that's a, yeah, I mean that's that's important. I think it's it's again you can start comparing poker players to athletes, or it's a sport and all this type of stuff. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, at some level, there is people are to, to separate the top or the winners are going to be people that are mentally strong, doing something differently, and finding ways to to get slight edges. Yeah. Right? It's like you got to be competitive. You know, you got a little rest. Um, you know, number of tables, how you're doing stuff. Like it can be a big difference. At some point, people aren't just giving it away. Or you know, if they are, you, you said any given day on any given day, you can. And that's what's cool about tournaments as well. That it's like on any given day, you have yeah. opportunity to run well, play well, and potentially hit a massive score. So it's like you're you're always you're kind of always in control of a a really big big uh, big shift in what you're doing. But, we talked about you know bankroll being a huge factor in terms of your overall success, but another one that we didn't talk about was consistency. It's like you can be a great player on one day, but if you have an A game and a D game, or an A game and a C game, and you play your C game you know, more often than someone that always plays their A game, but their A game isn't as good as your A game. Well, that latter person is going to fare better because he's playing his A game all the time. So consistency is huge. And that, that comes down to the mental game. You know, the first mentor I worked with, he told me he worked with professional golfers and he said, you know, a round of golf is whatever, four hours. How often are you actually hitting the golf ball? Like five minutes, 10 minutes. So what are you doing the other three hours and 50 minutes? And he's like, that's what I focus on. And, and, and I was like, this, it just totally hit me because I'm like, poker's the exact same. You sit at a table for eight hours. And I was playing, you know, 24 hours at the time in Macau, played 24 hour sessions. But I'm like, how many decisions do I make? I mean, I fold seven do soft suit preflop, but that's not a decision. Like how many big decisions do I make that impact the, the, the results of my session? Maybe five, 10, 15. So like, what am I doing the rest of the time? worked a sure. lot of my, there's huge improvements in that. And so I think poker, you know, is very important very important that's uh that's very true all right let's finish uh, with one or two more questions here what is, well 
Do you have an opinion? Actually, I want to ask you the Italian poker market because Mustafa Kinnett touched on it. How does it work exactly? Because it is segregated, correct? The Italian, you could play on .it on like Party Poker or Stars or other sites, but it's it's not, you're not playing against the world player pool. Is that correct? correct. So there, there's siloed markets here. Um, .it, .fr, .es for France and Spain. Um, there might be other countries as well, but IT is one of them. And this happened many years ago, um, like maybe eight, seven years ago or something. It happened a while ago. Uh, and so they basically shut off from the rest of like poker stars globally um, or party or whatever site it is globally. Um, so that obviously, you know, created its own market. And for a while there was, there was a lot of opportunity there in the, in the sense of like when it got siloed, you took away all these good players that were, that were, could play with them. And then you played with this, you know, rather more, you know, new and efficient market. So you saw some people moving from other countries to be in Italy to play on the dot IT. Right. Um, but then that market became very efficient and people, you know, and then now the, the, the you know, the dot IT stars market, I think there's some very good players. And my understanding is it's, it's very efficient. Um, just like a lot of the other, dot uh, FR. Yes. I'm, I'm imagining. Um, but again, I'm not, this has been a while since I've played on the site. Um, and I'm not in the know enough to have a right. strong opinion about what's happening today. Okay. Fair enough. And uh, what is, you travel a lot, your wife and you, you've been around the world. What is your favorite place? Give me your favorite place to play poker, like just city overall where you've gone and, and sort of had the opportunity to play in a live venue. And then as well, your favorite place just to travel, not poker related. Fair question. Uh, well, Macau for sure for poker, just because it's kind of like, the Mecca, the Olympics. I mean, it's just, there's just, there was really nothing like it. Um, I, I have a personal affinity for it just because you know, my experience there and whatever, but, uh, Macau is truly one of a kind as far as personal travel. Uh, you know, we love Bali, Indonesia, just, uh, there's a magic to that place. That's, that's very unique. Um, I do love Italy. I mean, I, I, I still like really appreciate the things that I was drawn to about Italy so long ago, I guess it's become more normal. So sometimes I, uh, you know, you lose sight of things that when you see them every day. Um, so, but it, I've had a long relationship with Italy, but uh, Italy overall objectively is definitely at the top. And then maybe Antibes, France, uh, is another place that is south of France near Monaco, like an, a, a half hour west is definitely uh, at the top. Very cool. And and do you see, when do you, when do you anticipate, you know, I've had friends say they're not going to have their kids go back to school until January, at least it could be even longer. Who knows what's going you know, based January? on. Oh, wow. Is, do you think that, well, I mean, you're saying you think it could be 18 months even until the world's back to normal or something, but I mean, do you, or 12 months, eight, a year, but what do you, what do you think on, in terms of traveling? Like when do you think you'll be back flying somewhere when, oh, when, man, you know, back over under, when do you take your first flight? You know, we talk about this all, all, we talk about this all the time because, you know, we were, we were supposed to come back to the U S in, in, in February. So we like literally had a flight booked a week from when we were going to go like a week. It was like a week after we were supposed to leave in a week and then the whole thing happened. So it's like, <laughs> you know, what I want to happen and what I think is going to happen, I'm fighting these two internal forces and I'm trying to, you know, separate myself to listen to what I think is the highest, you know, the most likely thing to happen. And I'm sometimes clouded by what I want to happen. So it's hard to be objective. Um, okay. So the school thing, uh, we are in a, we're in a unique situation where ironically the people that are at the least risk are children, right? factually but at the same time it's the group of people that people are the most protective about right like like 
someone sending their kid out into a world where there's a virus is like the last thing to happen, even not, though they're at the lowest not risk. Not to mention they can get, well, they get it and then they're going to give it to you or to your They're going to spread it, right? So the children are going to spread it dramatically. So opening the schools has that whole effect as well, where it's like forced non-social distancing. It's forced social connecting. Right. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think the end of the year we're drawing dead. Um, you know, back until we have a virus. I mean, it, it, as long as back until we have a vaccine, I think, you know, saying that not until next January is very possible over under for me having a flight, man, it's just too hard to tell. Like if there was a lined bet, I wouldn't set it. I wouldn't offer people options. I just don't, you know, like I'm just taking it day by day and like, like, look, dude, I like, if you asked me a month ago, like, when are you going to be allowed out of the house? I would say like, I don't know, but now they're projecting May 4th, that's 65, 70 days. Like I wouldn't have guessed that. And that's just the projection, which means it's never before it's only going to be after, right. That's your best case scenario. And it's like, yeah, it might not even be that. So that's like, you know, two and a half months without taking a walk. So right. like, oh, shit, man, a flight is like, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's the place. The last place you want to be is like a casino or a, in a, in a, in a closed tube. Or also like, okay, I'm going to take a flight. I'm going to go to California to see my parents. But like, am I going to just like hop in their house the day? Well, like I'm going to have to quarantine for 14 days when I land because like, I'm not just going to go like interact with my parents who are making all this effort not to go around anyone. And then I'm just going to go in their house. Like neither of us want that. So it's like, you know, do I want to go there and then like go somewhere for 14, 16 days before, you know? So it's like, I mean, there's so many things to think about. Um, when it comes to flying, like, why are you going where you're going? And what are you going to do when you get there? Like, what's, you know, what's reality going to be like? Uh, there's so many unknowns. I'm just taking it one day at a time, man. It's, it's very, it's you, man. You're, you're traveling between like, I know you're what's going on. Yeah. So I basically, you know, but, but the Bahamas, let's call Bimini, but that's like the easiest for me to go Miami to Bimini. But I just, I, I'm not traveling anywhere. I don't want to go anywhere else. Like I don't want to get on planes. You know, it's easy to go on a boat. I don't want to be, I don't want to go, you know, Vegas. There's this other, there's some special event stuff and it's like, Oh, or I could drive and do something. But I'm just like, I don't see, I don't see it happening this year. I don't see it. Yeah. Like it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like it makes sense. Why do you want to put yourself out there to do that? Right? Like why, why do you want to risk it to get other people sick? I'm not even as worried about myself, but like you said, parents and whatnot, like, do I really want to go there? And, then you, and what are you going to do? And then you can yeah. travel and be inside of a thing. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know how the food's being prepared. You don't know. You just like, it's nice to have your own routine, your own situation. I, I think the more people get used to that and comfortable, it's going to be harder to, to shift. And then I think people are going to become more homebodies. Like people that were kind of traveling, it could take a couple of years before people start saying, yeah, you know what? We're going to go travel. Um, we're going to go do this. We're going to take go on a vacation. cruise. Who's yeah. going to go on a cruise for a long time. And who wants to go travel somewhere remote and far away in the world? Like what if far you away from a hospital, yeah, far away like, from, yeah, I don't, it just seems, uh, it just seems all sort of, um, pushing towards this, this, uh, this, this sort of methods to what you're going to be, people are going to do and how comfortable they're going to be to, to do stuff. So I, I don't know, man, it's a, it's a bizarre time, right? We live in a very, very crazy world. This 2020 new decade thing got, got off to a, a wild start. Zoom so, stock is worth 50%. I guess you could say the decade airlines. is technically owns when 2020 it's weird. Cause people say 2020, but really once 2020 ends, it would be like the new, you know, 2021 through 2030. But I don't know, man, I, I definitely, some people joke are like, would you hit a reset button? It's been, it's been very, very peculiar times. Like a lot of weird, weird energy out there. 
Yeah, but I feel like, you know, what, you know, it's like, yeah, I would never wish this to happen, but I think people are going to be forced to learn things about themselves. And, and, you know, like there's, there's, you're going to look back on this time as like we live through once in a lifetime experience. And like, even though that was hard and bad and sure. tragic, like, and, and there is, there is a lot of, it, you know, you're going to feel like you got through it. There is, there, it's also that, but it's also, there's a lot of, um, people being forced to sort of relax, reflect. I think a lot of people get to do some personal growth, learning, thinking, reflecting, maybe some great ideas and, and innovations come out of this time. I mean, there's, there's all kinds yeah. of sort of talk about people, the more creative minds in the world back in the day. And there were some, some events with the, the yeah, like Isaac and, Newton, right. Yeah. During the quarantine created like the, the, his laws of physics. I mean, like there's, I read something about that. I could be saying butchering. Yeah, that, me but. too. I, I heard, I heard that heard stuff like that, but either way, you know, now technology is so crazy too, right? Imagine back then couldn't really share, get ideas out, blogs, videos, yeah. um, zooms where you can connect and talk to other like, minded people where you're on your own and now it's like all right you're you're at home you're forced into a spot you're you're not you're not able to do you know you're just more efficient in theory <laughs> with what you're doing so. you have access to all the smartest minds in the world for free like on right. twitter youtube um, yeah podcast a lot of these new york times and other articles and things or two are giving information for free i know it's incredible so i'm not like the, the situation is absolutely tragic. We have, you know, unparalleled job loss, potentially a recession or a depression. I mean, it's like clearly not a good situation. I'm just trying to look at the positive and make lemons out of lemonade type of thing, but we right. can't, you know, not acknowledge how, how tragic it is. But yeah, I think um, it's going to be a challenging time for people, but hopefully, you know, they come out stronger on the other side. That's, that's the hope. Yeah, that's definitely the, the hope and the wish. And, and we'll, uh, we wish you and your wife the best. Let's do this. Yeah, you uh, too, man. Dollar retweet courtesy of Party Poker. And Alec, today we are going to let him choose when to roll it. And someone's going to get that ticket. Tell me. Let's roll it. What are we waiting for? Here we go. No time. We know we got nothing but time, but we don't want to waste time. And that is a winner, Milich Mitja, probably pronouncing it wrong. Congrats to you. We will go ahead and give you that ticket. Awesome. Maybe Congrats, one Mitch. before this guy might be a double winner. I don't know. I think I some think some people might have a hack or a cheat on these things. Like, <laughs> it's like how do you win multiple giveaways? Uh, you know, it's like, I guess some people are just that lucky. But uh, um, <laughs> your your last message with them is like three days ago. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's just like, oh yeah, I'll win this again and run it back so congrats to you <laughs> alec i really appreciate it guys again we'll yeah, show man, you awesome. thanks we'll for throw, having me man we'll throw through it here he's got his website he's got blogs really hitting on the current events issues as well as poker uh conscious poker fifty-one thousand subscribers over 600 videos in that neighborhood he's got alec torelli on instagram that's his wife's instagram little bites of beauty twitter can check out his Hennon mob, of course, see a little bit of his tournament journey, although he's a cash game background. Uh, and then again, the um, you know, we 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 basically covered all of it. We get so I appreciate it. Yes, yeah, stay safe, stay quarantined, stay do, man. social distancing, all the best, man. I appreciate Peace, it. Love and social distance, guys. Stay well, right. run good, Jeff. See you, buddy. You, bro. All right. Yeah. Well, Alex Trelli, continue growing the game of poker. We thank him for his time, and we'll see you guys tomorrow with Dario San Martino, uh, another Italian background the second place finisher in the WSOP last year. WSOP main event. We'll have him on tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. And thank you for being here. Thanks for watching and be safe. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes.